how soon after it was finished did it air at the London Film Festival? Was it really short, shortly after completion? Because I, I think that's when both of us saw it for the first yeah. time. Yeah. No, it was the, the first public screening of the film was in May 2016 in uh, Cannes, in France. Oh, right. And in England, the screening in the London Film Festival was the first U- UK screening. Yeah. Uh, okay. And was that... Was that shortly after it was uh, completed? Yes. Yeah. Right. And and can is happening right now. As yes. We speak, so it's yeah. exactly a it's actually exactly a year. Yes. Uh, right. So you absolutely sick of talking about it now? You would you would imagine because yeah. I've had a few interviews since <laughs> yeah. the films come out, but um, to my surprise, actually, it's it's not like that. Um, also, partly I I learned to. Su- I mean, one very common question is how did it all begin? And I go back in my memory to how it began. I go, go back to the, the ambience of that time. Mm. If, if I go to a well-rehearsed speech, mm. then, or then it, would, it would kill me. <laughs> but, <laughs> it, it, was, it, it was funny in preparing for the podcast because I've actually seen you talk twice about it now. Mm. Once at the, well, both times at the BFI, actually. Um, and... Uh, I kind of almost don't want to ask the same questions, but there was some really yeah, good, that, the guy, some really good What's the name of the guy there. interviewing you? He was really good. He <laughs> yeah, was like was asking great. all yeah. the questions. I was like, damn, that's what I wanted <laughs> yes. to ask. Let's all know now. But yeah. uh, we can still go over that stuff, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I, Absolutely. Don't, don't think about that. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, I think the thing that, um, that I took away from, uh, from that last interview was just the story of how uh, you came to make the red turtle mm. how, it, how it all started mm. yeah that's uh, <laughs> that to be honest if if i were in a position of of listening to someone who makes a film especially working with japan that that would be my my most urgent question how did it all start so i understand that and in this case well um it's actually i wasn't planning to make a feature film and um, I was very happy making short films. Uh, I mean, extremely happy. I've seen thousands over the years. It's an art form which I think is so, so individualistic and mm. so poetic and powerful. And you go f- so much further than in feature films with short films. Mm. Um, so I was pretty happy, but I got an invitation from Studio Ghibli in Tokyo. Wow, and, that's amazing. And then you, something wakes up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I literally got a letter. I got an email say from Studio Ghibli saying, um, "Let's work together." They saw my short short films. Um, we had briefly met before at festivals. It was very nice, but yeah. um, there was no, absolutely not even the faintest hint that we we would ever work together. Mm. On my side, there was no hint, and um, they wrote, um, "We like your short films. If you think of making a feature, we would like to produce it." and they immediately added, we would co-produce it with our distributor in Paris, Wild Bunch. Um, they, they, I'd, I'd heard of Wild Bunch, but I immediately understood the reason. Because it's very, the, the polarity Japan-England, or Japan-Western Europe, is extreme. And they had an old ally, Wild Bunch, a solid, a solid ally. They've been working together for years. They understand each other, they trust each other, that's... Of course, important for for especially for Japan, and also Wild Bunch is huge. It's a huge distributor. They have money, so they they organize lots of French money, 
the Japanese, I've never found out how much, but the Japanese invested big time in, a, in the feature. So, you, sorry, you don't know the budget of the film? The budget of the film was roughly 10 million uh, euros. Um, the making, the, the, the production was 8 million. Development, um, promotion, etc., make it made it to ten million. Oh, uh, okay. And then when when you say you don't know the exact amount, is that for distribution? No, I don't know what their uh, what percentage they contribute. Contributed. Oh, right. What? Yes. Oh, okay. Right, yeah. Right. I asked on a couple of occasions, and there were two things. First of all, they were quite secretive about it, and secondly, really? there were changes all the time, also. Uh, okay. Um, initially, and then I could ask again now, I suppose, but I, I haven't. So, in terms of like it, the film, like being put out, it's a Studio Ghibli film, but distributed by Wild Bunch. It's yeah, Wild Bunch are the distributor and the producer and the uh, co-producer, okay. right, right, both. Right. But they don't produce animated films. Yeah. They've never done it, and and they never will. So their first reaction was. Um, uh, first of all, the development would be just me by myself mm. with a few collaborators, yeah. no studio involved. And when the development was completed after several years, they said, we can do two things, create um, a studio just for the film, like, like so often happens, mm -hmm. or go to an existing studio and ask them, please make the film. Right. Um, and they chose the second option. Um, also, they said we can't be. Wildborn said we can't be the, the producers overseeing the whole production. Mm -hmm. That's that's some uh, more experienced film producers should do that. Mm. So they worked closely over many years with Why Not Productions, and Why Not Productions is a live action uh, production company in Paris, and they have they have done very very successful art house movies over many years. Mm -hmm. um, Xavier Beauvoir, he made um, Of Gods and Men, um, it may be a slightly different title in, in English. It was a huge, huge hit. Um, I tried to cost so many. Anyway, they're very successful. Mm, yeah. And and Why Not Productions said, okay, we are the producers, but we don't know anything about animation. So we ask an animation studio to actually take care of the making, and we will supervise the schedule and the budget. Okay. It's, so I had many producers. It was... Um, it was a hierarchy, wow, um, yeah. and but I understood why. I mean, yeah. none of them were totally able to take care of the whole film. Mm -hmm. Studio Ghibli would have been capable of doing it, and there was initially there was no uh, desire to make the film in Japan. Neither, neither on their side, neither on my side. They felt it's probably too challenging for a European filmmaker who doesn't speak a word to direct a film uh, in Japan. Right. Um, and I think they're right. And it's not just the language, it's also the the, um, the relationship between the artists, mm. um, their particular efficiency, their working method. Um, they have very, very few non-Japanese people in their studios, mm -hmm. like one or two. Yeah. Um, basically, they are very Japanese. And I, I understand that. And secondly, I, at the time I had two teenage kids, I felt very reluctant to, to leave them for a number of years yeah. to work in Japan. Um, or worse, even to take them to Japan. That would have been too challenging. Yeah. So, But it was immediately clear, make the film in Europe, immediately. Right. They needed the premises to make The Wind Rises by Miyazaki and then uh, Princess Kaguya by mm -hmm. Takata. And they said, no, you make it in Europe. 
and I, and I asked them, what uh, do you want it to be like a typical Studio Ghibli film, like the look, etc. And they said, no, no, you propose something. Um, and luckily they said that because I wouldn't mm. have been able to make a typical Japanese film. Yeah. It's, it's just not my skill. They're quite, I think Ghibli are quite bold about the way they approach like their, the, their films visually. Like They can often look quite different. Like uh, my neighbor Yamada's, mm. and uh, what's the what the princess one that came out? A couple princess Kaguya. Yeah, Kaguya, yeah. Yes. I mean, it looks they can be adventurous. They have got a slightly um, independent anarchist side to them. They yeah, do yeah. Their way. Yeah. And uh, if it doesn't work, then the whole thing collapses. Mm -hmm. If it does work, it makes them strong. Yeah. In, in that case, in their case, it works very yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they're powerful. They can. S completely decides things their way. Mm -hmm. they're, they're different from many other studios, mm -hmm. the way I understand it. Yeah. And to and to ask for a European filmmaker to direct a film, mm. it's not not that surprising because they have made they've done adventurous things in the past. Yeah. Like the museum, they made I mean Miyazaki and Takata made a whole documentary feature together. Um, they um, they had adventurous plans for a school for animators, yeah. uh, which which was highly original. Which in the end they never did. Um, so I could imagine um, them saying, "Okay, let's try something new." Yeah. <laughs> so just to come back to the the letter, uh, the email was that yeah. from? Did you say it was from Toshio Suzuki? It was indirectly from him, from him that they sent it through the director of the Ghibli Museum, and I've never asked them exactly why from they, the they chose that. Yes. The Ghibli Museum, wow. Yeah, they, they chose to do it indirectly, and I think it's something Japanese. They're ah. very careful, because um, at any moment, in, initially at any moment, they felt that they were experimenting, and it may, it, they never promised anything in the beginning. They said, mm. let's try um, they have they're secretive, but they also have to they have to protect their re reputation and their privacy. Mm. I mean, their their studio space. Yeah, um, I've seen it over the years, over and over and over again. Mm. Uh, they, there are many requests they don't reply to. There are people standing outside on the street, hoping, I mean, Europeans and Americans hoping that they are invited to come in to see the studio, and and they are not invited. To yeah, come in. even when I, I went to. Japan a couple of years ago and I went to the Ghibli Museum and even to go to the museum you have to like pre-order a ticket like you can't just turn up and just buy a ticket on the door they just won't have it that's because the museum is so popular and they set um, a limit to the number of spectators at any moment yeah, yeah. rightly so and they have had many requests to make more museums like that in Japan and mm. outside Japan and they They've just said no when it's, when it's good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. Th that's typically them. They don't try to create an empire which will last forever. Mm. They, they do things um, as, 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 as it pleases them. And once Takata and, and Miyazaki um, really, I mean, really start making films, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then I can very easily imagine that they decide to close forever. Really? They, they didn't say that literally. But they created a studio for Takata, Suzuki, um, and Miyazaki to make their films, and then also for other directors. Um, we will see. Wow. So, so you got this uh, email, and what was what was the next step? So the email literally said, um, "Are you interested?" And I, I replied, "Yes." <laughs> 
And I one word. Uh, what? One word. <laughs> yeah. um, I said yes, but can you please explain? Because yeah, loads of emojis. Too... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Loads, of, <laughs> yes. loads, of, loads of dancing cat gifs. <laughs> yeah. It was too bizarre. I, I really yeah. couldn't believe it, and I thought, hang on, there's something I'm, I'm missing here. Can you explain? And they said our partner from Wild Bunch, actually the CEO from Wild Bunch called, called Vincent Maraval, he, he was about to come to London for a trip. He works closely with Ken Loach, so he needs to visit Ken Loach. So we had a meeting and I asked Vincent Maraval, okay, now tell me honestly, is there something I should hear now that, that I've not been told yet? Um, for instance, they have asked 200 other directors the oh, same right. question and they will select their favorite one. Um, and no, Maraval immediately confirmed. He said, no, they're really interested to, to go into this adventure. And you are the only one that's, that has been um, contacted. Wow. And it's purely on the basis of your short work. That is, films. what yeah. an incredible, Isn't like, that? compliment. Isn't like, like, that's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it's believable, because, I mean, but, because your, your short films are, like, incredible, but, like, what an amazing feeling it must have. It is believable. We have an affinity, but it's unbelievable. I agree. And also... If they believe that I can make a feature film, yeah. then immediately, immediately, instantly, that day itself, I rose to already rose to the. Really, occasion. I felt like, in that case, yes, let's do it. I um, would have. I think I would have, been excited and had that same response, but then just immediately started shitting myself, just like, oh god, like I'm gonna let down like the two like most you know, formidable forces in like kind of, animation filmmaking like all the time. I hear what you say, and bizarrely, Tim, I didn't. I wasn't nervous about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I knew that they would be very, very um, have have very high expectations from anyone yeah, who's invited yeah. to do that. But I have them for myself, um, and I really saw it as a step by step thing. And yeah. they did too. Like, let's first get the synopsis, mm-hmm. and then maybe it, the whole thing stops because yeah. the synopsis is not exciting, and they yeah, just yeah. say. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, and then let's just get the script. Don't yeah. don't think about the film, um, all, all the wonderful ideas of what will happen later. Just get a really good script. Mm. So in that sense, I felt uh, not nervous. Um, even though, yes, I'm I'm a huge. I've been since the early nineties. I'm a huge fan of their work. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I've also often asked why it just feels so good. Their, film, their films feel so good, mm. but there's a maturity in them. Um, there's a depth in them. There's symbols in them which come back to you mm. um, that make you want to see the films over and over again. And mm. I mean, when that happens, then yeah. then, then you really know they're special. Yeah. And so you, uh, at that point, then I suppose you went away and you wrote a synopsis. Which later so became a script. I just sat at home, wrote a synopsis. Um, I had one huge advantage, is that I toyed with the idea of writing a feature um, 10 years before that. And I only showed it to one producer, a person I knew personally, um, and that's all. And the producer said, well, you know, I'm not into features. And I looked at, at the synopsis and I didn't like it anyway. So I put it in doors thinking, it's not the time. And may never, there may never be a time. And I, I think the chances of making a feature were, were very, very small. It was not like one day I will. It was more like um, maybe, but I'm, I'm not sure. And mean, meanwhile, I'll make short films. 
and these in the synopsis I had written before included the theme of a castaway on a on a on a desert island, a very very popular theme, especially last ten twenty years, um, almost too popular because again a castaway on a desert island mm. story, um, and yet what, what other films have there been? There's been Castaway, uh, Lost, Castaway. Yeah, there's definitely Castaway. Um, there's of course Desert Island Discs on the Radio Four has been around for a long time. <laughs> there's Lost, which I've never seen, but it's big. Um, there is there there is um, well this now we're talking about seventies I think a Swiss Family oh, Robinson. Yeah. And there's the Blue Lagoon and a sequel to the Blue Lagoon. Because I um, feel like it's almost one of those things that it it feels a bit. To me, it felt a bit like out of time, like that idea of castaway stuff, that adventure stories from for kids, you know, for boys I see. from the fifties yes. or sixties kind yes. of thing, like that concept. And I listened to a really interesting um, episode of This American Life podcast about quicksand, and they did this really interesting statistical analysis of how often quicksand featured in popular culture from the fifties through to now, and it was it just like. As there was one point where it was all about quicksand and everyone was That's talking funny. about quicksand all the time. Everyone was always getting caught in quicksand and now nobody gets in quicksand <laughs> anymore. <laughs> it will have but, a revival. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But what is out of what is dated is the the original Robinson Crusoe story. It doesn't work anymore for our times. He basically wants to control nature. He wants to convert um, a local person to the Christian faith and to modern culture and modern values or modern of the, that time. And that doesn't feel good now when you... Mm. I mean, it's, it's actually quite awful. <laughs> <laughs> but to be alone in the tropics, all alone, and say, what, what, what should I do now? What can I do now? That, that is like a timeless theme. Yeah. Yeah. And it can, I mean, I've seen alone in nature or alone on a raft, even in different shapes and f- in other films and, and in books, um, to be all alone. And if it happens to be a topical island, I think it's an attractive um, setting, an attractive environment. I, w- I, would, I would find it very interesting to be in that situation. Hmm. Um, to be, uh, because I toyed with the idea of um, alone on a Mediterranean island. In that case, you have to handle the the subject of cold, the w- cold winter. Oh, it's yeah. far too cold in the winter to yeah. just be w- with one layer of clothing. Um, I thought with other ideas like an oasis in a desert. It's the uh, it's the same thing, but in an opposite way. Right. Um, and that I, I thought was really interesting. But there's something about the ocean, which just the the beauty of the ocean, mm. which I really wanted to use and explore. Yeah. And so you uh, and and how did they respond to the uh, Synopsis. synopsis. So I wrote a synopsis. It had no turtle yet, but it was there were some elements in which I've kept, and they immediately said, "Yeah." I didn't even go to Japan. They, I sent it to them, and they said, "Write a script." Um, I, I can't remember how long it took me to do synopsis, but it was really fast. Mm. And um, the script took me I don't know five months or four months or six months. I don't remember because there were some interruptions. And that was a new discipline. Like like so many animators, I'm not a writer. Um, and to genuinely write a story yeah. and make it make it appealing, yeah. um, not not just write technically, but make it like you you want to convince someone that yeah. this is going to be really nice. Um, that was interesting, a new discipline. And I thought, 
oh my god it's so quick yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. Can, you can tell the whole story so quickly so and how how did you go about doing it did you like read books on how to like write scripts yes oh no not that no i read books about subjects but oh, not, right, yeah. no i just I, ju- I just tried my best yeah i asked um a native english speaker to go over my english mm-hmm. and um I felt I wrote quite quite simply and visually. I mm-hmm. described visually what you saw. Yeah. Instead of explaining everything, I just said, "This happens. This happens. Mm-hmm. This happens." And there, um, there, the the rhetorical was in the story, right? Okay. Uh, for the first time, and uh, again, um, I went. This time, I went to Japan and I showed them the script. And first of all, I told them the whole story from memory, mm-hmm. and then at the end, I said, "Him here's the script for." look at it they said okay well, let's meet again tomorrow and the next day they said great let's go really <laughs> yes and they, they they added yeah okay there are some things that we don't think w- work perfectly but it's a script in the animatic or in the storyboard animatic you will you will um, explore the, you will deal with that mm-hmm. and it was so easy and the, the, even at that time one of the producers said how much time do you need for the um, storyboard and is six months enough, eight months? And I thought, I, I don't know, but if I've got some collaborators, eight months should do. Yeah. It took me years <laughs> in the end. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Did they com- like pay for that development? Yes. So they went, so literally after two days, it was like, yeah, cool, here's some money to go and make the animatic. Yes, wow. exactly. Just a, mo- a modest fee, but that's, that's all I needed. Mm-hmm. And um, the, um, the, I, I was, the plan was to have some collaborators, some professional storyboard artists helping me mm-hmm. from from London or from from England, and immediately within weeks I realized that that was actually um, um, slowing me down because really? I, I was still exploring too much to give them very clear instructions, so they would kind of go do their best and w- whatever I said, do something. And I would look at it and think, no, we are not there yet, but I'm, I'm not sure yet where we're going. So I wasn't helpful for them. Right. Um, they they were good, but they were too early, mm. basically. And then I had long periods where I worked alone, and then occasionally I would have a fellow storyboard artist helping me, right. um, including Roger Mainwood, who, who just directed... Um, um, Ethel, Ethel and Ernest. Yeah. He's he's my age. He's extremely experienced. Mm. Um, I knew him. I knew um, uh, I, I knew he would he would be good, and he was good. He was very good. Wow. Mm. So you, at what point did you bring him in? Like, in oh gosh, I don't remember the date. I'd already worked at least a year on this on, oh, on really? the storyboard. Wow. Yes. Initially, I thought I would just do the storyboard. Mm. I mean, literally just nice little rectangular squares. Mm. And then I quickly felt more comfortable on 12 field drawings. In other words, a bit larger than A4. Wow. And then um, I also realized I really needed a timeline. So actually, the, the storyboard became the animatic almost yeah. right from the beginning. Right, okay. Um, in the old days, I, I would separate the two, do storyboard first and animatic later. In this case, I felt too, too um, separate from from the rhythm and yeah. from the timing. So it, it basically, we skipped the storyboard phase, and it became animatic very soon. Yeah. And even later, when the crew, the full crew, came in, the full production, we we never had a really s- strong storyboard to look at. It was always the animatic. Right. Okay. But um, 
But isn't the animatic, wouldn't that be like a storyboard? Yes, it is. It is. Yeah, so yeah. you can just take images from the animatic and print them on pages. Oh, what you mean, like from when, when people started doing layouts, they didn't, well, usually they'd want to work from a storyboard. Yes, and well, we, we made a book storyboard because I, I insisted, I thought, I need a physical storyboard where I can write notes and, oh, okay. and, and do indications and so on. And in the end, we hardly used it. Right, right. Um, the, the, since we all work on screens, um, mm. the animatic images were used, went straight to the layout artists. And you, I think you said in <clears throat> when you were talking at the BIFI that you spent a bit of time in the Seychelles as well mm. on a research trip. Was mm. that when, when did that happen in the process? After about two years or a year and a half after starting the animatic, I felt I had, of course, you have all the information you want from different sources because um, finding footage of marine turtles, there are hundreds and hundreds of videos on the internet and their books, their magazines. I had lots, lots of photos. I love researching. It's, it's not um, a task that I have to perform. It's just like, gosh, I'm so curious. I want any mm. information about subjects from mm. any source. Um, then I still felt it was not experiential. It was out there. It was not felt. Um, it was not me. I needed to feel what it is to walk in the night in the tropics near the sea and to to feel the rain, to see the particular um, formation of the sunsets there, which are totally different than in Europe. Mm. Um, details like that. And just to get new ideas for... You know, what do you hear during the day? What what do you hear on an island mm. like that? Um, so I simply asked them, I need some I need to do some research. They said, yes, no problem. They, they do the same thing. So they, they found it totally normal. I chose the Seychelles for two reasons. Um, they are tropical islands. They are beautiful islands. They um, I chose them because the rock formations are particularly beautiful. They are ancient granite rocks from when the continents were still one big continent. And they were so ancient that they've really acquired beautiful round shapes. Mm -hmm. They're not the, the sharp rocks that you see in China, for instance. Mm -hmm. They're beautiful, soft granite sh shapes. Almost, I would say almost, they remind me of, of the human body at times. Right. You, you want to caress them, and uh, you caress them with the eye. And that I found interesting. And the other one was purely a practical reason. Um, I mean, I was permanently working close to my um, uh, limits of my energies. I was permanently working yeah. more more than 60 hours a week because I, I always felt like, no, this is not it. I have to get it better. Uh, what time is it? Oh, no, I'll stay, I'll stay a few more hours after midnight. Mm. I want to get this right tonight. So I was permanently tired because I worked crazy hours. Mm. So to go to... Um, like on the other side of the globe to uh, an island where it takes two days to get there because you need a plane, another plane, yeah, then yeah. a boat, and then maybe another boat. Um, I decided Seychelles because it's a direct flight. Right. And even at the same time zone, more or less. Oh, oh right, you just need, you needed just like a one flight sort of flight. I, I, need, I needed to spend, waste as little time as possible on, on the trip itself. Right. Um, provided the island is really good and it, mm. is, it was the right choice. Did you find like an island that was completely deserted that you could stay on? No, but I wasn't looking for that. Right. Uh, I wasn't <coughs> ready to literally walk alone um, with nothing um, uh, and sleep on the sand and experience what, what the protagonist would experience. Would have been really, really interested. I toyed with the idea, 
but I thought that is that's an extreme experience. Yeah. Um, you, if I were well rested and there was plenty of time <laughs> and and there was some support in one way or another, and then I would have found it very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, I, I couldn't forget a program I'd seen years before where there was a documentary of Joanna Lumley spending a night on a desert island. <laughs> yeah. Is that the one where she makes like some shoes for herself or something? I'm, oh, I don't remember that. Oh, okay. But it was basically the, a program about how, how do you react to a situation yeah. like that. And the crew would film her during the day or interview her during the day and spend a night on a yacht uh, w- well away from the island mm-hmm. and genuinely leave her alone on the island. And after the first night, she was really in a bad shape because really? of the mosquitoes. Oh, God. <laughs> she oh, said, right. I couldn't sleep one moment. The mosquitoes were everywhere. Oh, my God. And I thought, you know, you can have the most wonderful experience of an island, but you only need one night of mosquitoes, and it, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, it's too heavy. Yeah. Um, so I went to a small island called Ladique, where there are a few hundred people, or maybe a thousand, I don't know, uh, people who live there very simply. There's one road. And there are probably two cars, a few carts pulled by by cows. Um, there's um, there's very little. There are a few extremely posh hotels um, for tourists who want that. Mm. Um, I stayed with the uh, in a bed and breakfast, lo- local people. Um, it was absolutely wonderful. It was really wonderful. You eat well. It's simple. People are slow. They um, they they are slow in always the expression on their face and their gestures. Yeah. And the, the way they walk on the street, and I spent days and days just walking alone. Um, I got a local um, man from Seychelles. I asked my bed, bed and breakfast people, I need a guide, because the the forest was dense. I didn't know if there would, would be things to watch out for. Oh, yeah. And there were, for instance, there were lots of spiders. I, I had no idea if they could sting or not. And yeah, yeah. I preferred to have some information beforehand yeah. and um, basically there's, there's virtually nothing that can hurt you. The spiders don't don't like humans and they disappear, right. they don't sting, there are no snakes, there's a millipede but it's not poisonous. Um, it's basically very safe and he showed right. me lots of fruit trees and and you know cocoa trees. Oh yeah, what is the thing that in the, they eat the fruit from the, the In tree. the film. What is, yeah, what it's is a breadfruit. What is it called? Bread? It's called breadfruit. Right. And the reason why it's called like that, it may have many names depending on the culture, is that it has a flowery, bland taste. Oh, okay. It's not delicious fruit. It's It has some some value. Um, you can't live from that, but it has some value if you um, cook it. Right, okay. Um, I'm not even sure if you can eat it raw, but in the film, he eats... <laughs> that is so out of yeah. order in the film. You couldn't give him a nice apple to eat. <laughs> it's <laughs> <so> disgusting. <laughs> Uh, yes, I want to keep the film as simple as possible. Yeah. If there was lots of choice of food, it yeah. would have given a whole different angle on the film. Yeah, yeah. And watching the film, it, it feels it, it's it's it feels really authentic to what I imagine that's like being in a place like that. How much did it actually? No, affect? it's it's stylized. What is authentic is that um, we idealize tropical islands and we think the sky is always blue and the beaches are always pristine, white and clean. No, it's obviously not the case. Um, in the tropics, actually, the, eye, the skies are often grey. And, and is that something you learned from your experience in the Seychelles? Or? I, I, actually, the Seychelles confirmed that. I expected that. 
um, it had been in the topics before, and also I felt strongly about creating an island that would not be paradise in the film, um, partly because of a story. He doesn't want to stay there, the main guy, he wants to go home. And partly because I, um, it gets too sweet if everything is wonderful and beautiful. Mm. And I, found, I, I, I don't find it t- attractive. So when the moments are sweet, when there's a beautiful sunset or a j- beautiful just warm afternoon sun, sunlight, then, then it's, it's really, the value is enhanced because just before that you had a whole period of yeah. grey skies. Mm. So when you uh, when you finished the animatic, then I suppose that it was a moment that it was signed off by Studio Ghibli, and then you had to set up a studio to actually make yes. the film. Well, the studio existed already. The signing off was slow because it took me a long time to do the animatic because there were knots in the story. The basic story worked, but there were knots in the in the in the way I, we we expressed the story in the animatic that didn't feel right. Um, the old ingredients were correct, but somehow it didn't work. And so I would, in the beginning, I would just ask left and right, what do you think? What do you think? And I got lots of advice, but never something where suddenly something clicks and mm. I think, oh, of course. And it turned out that it needed lots of fine, fine tuning. And I had to swallow my pride because I'm used to finding the solutions myself mm. for my short films. It's, that's how it worked in the past for me. Yeah. Um, that kind of independent streak, and if there's a challenge, I'll just stick with it until I find a solution. Well, this is much bigger than I've ever done before, yeah. and so I, I, I quickly learned that I really needed a, a co-writer at a later stage, okay. and I really needed help from my editor. I'd always done all my editing myself. I thought I, I had um, a comfortable relationship with that particular mm. talent, um, but now in this time, this case, I had an editor, Celine Kilipikis, um, who proposed many things I would never have uh, in the uh, animatic stage. In the animatic stage, yeah. yes. She said, Yeah, I understand why you've done that, but you know, it, it will be a problem just later on. It, it doesn't flow, it doesn't look, I'll, I'll show you. And she would show me, and I think, Damn, yeah, she's right. Yeah. yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah, so I learned a lot from her. And um, the um, my co-writer suggested lots of small adjustments to f- to solve the the, the 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 challenges that I couldn't solve myself. Mm. Um, taking some scenes out, swapping some scenes around, changing camera angle, emphasizing a particular emotion, etc. Mm. She was really good, and I really needed that. She was a live action director, so that's what I found interesting. Right. I incidentally. For this film, it's live action that I look at, not other animated yeah, films. Yeah, yeah. I think it feels like that. Um, it doesn't... I mean, it, it, it. in a sense, it kind of does feel a bit more like a Japanese Ghibli film than it does any other kind of film because I, I feel like those those films feel sort of like more like live action than anything. And um, this definitely did. Like it, it was so cinematic, so kind of like calm and... In um in certain shots, like definitely had like sequences that sort of allowed themselves to kind of breathe a bit. Yeah, you know? that I, I felt strongly about. But many collaborators were surprised. He said, "Whoa, this is a slow film." <laughs> and I was thinking of live action. I think compared to live action, it's a fast film. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And you, you mentioned that in the w- the other night when you were talking to BFI, and I hadn't really thought about that before. I mean, the film's only eighty minutes, right? Yeah. But it, I mean, you, I think you're talking about Terence Malick and um, Gus Van Sant. 
Right, uh, you remember me. Yes. Um, but I think it, it's, it's true with animation. People, um, I think maybe they're just aware of like how many drawings are having to be done all the time. So they kind of like pack as much as they can into every scene. But you, you know, you did really let it. I had the advantage of, I've seen so many short films which were slow and, uh, or not, I'm, I'm, when I say slow, I mean not really, really fast pace, uh, just normal pace. And so I knew how, how beautiful it can be, that you don't have to keep every scene really short. Um, there's beauty in short scenes, and I've played with that, especially in commercials, and it's dynamic, and it's snappy, and there's a lot of um, um, energy when you have really fast editing. But it, doesn't, it, it was not the, my ambition for this film. Mm. I really liked the beauty of sometimes fast mm. editing and fast action, and sometimes breathing space, as you call yeah. it. Yeah. There, um, when it first started, it's it's like it's really. Um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. I mean, this has got a very dynamic start to it, and it's quite like intense. And I was like, "Oh, where's this film gonna go?" Like, well, I wasn't really, I didn't really know too much about it, and um, I really feel like the cr the crabs helped so much mm. in kind of like tie-in. Tim leaned over to me when we were watching and he was like, oh, it's the dad from Father and Daughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's fun. Yeah, look, we, they'd just shown, they just, so the screening we went to see, they'd just shown um, uh, Michael's previous uh, short films. And I think the last one before the thing was Father and, was Father and Daughter, was it? Not the very last one, but very close, yes. And um, it almost, uh, like Father and Daughter is about someone losing their father who goes out to sea. Or, mm. And this sort of starts... Starts with someone swimming in <laughs> yeah, the sea. Yeah, that's yes. the dad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it occurred to me, that was an unconscious uh, relationship. Yeah, yeah. It occurred to me afterwards, yeah. Yeah. What you see. Um, but and I like that because it just shows, like, it was... I, I obviously didn't think that you'd made that choice because of that, but, like, uh, it, everything about that film was, like, a, you could just see, oh, this is... Like you could look at those short films you've done prior and see that film and go, that is totally that guy who made those films. You know, like the crabs have that kind of humor to it, even in like Father and Daughter, which is heartbreaking. Like, I mean, even I was crying. I've seen that film so many times, and it's the first time I've actually seen it in good quality. And every time I like tear up, like 100%, even in that screening. Wow. Um, but that's got some kind of humorous sort of moments in mm. it when she's sort of like, as an old woman, putting the bike up yes. again, it falls over. And there's uh, and I, I thought, when I saw the crabs, I was like, oh yeah, this is uh, Michael Dugodot. Oh, right. Like, like, uh, but you know, the crabs are naturally like that. I didn't invent yeah, from yeah, the crabs. Yeah. They are yeah. really like that. But to observe that and to put that in is, sure. I, I feel, comes from you. Yes. And they were, they were handled in a way where they weren't like, you know, minions or the aliens from Toy Story. They weren't like kind of... You're not going to see a crab spin-off film off the back of that, you know. Like. No, although to be honest, I would enjoy. It. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to probably enjoy watching it, but um, cash in, man. Uh, but yeah, there was very initially there was a hermit crab, and hermit uh, crabs are even funnier. Yeah, because yeah. Because they 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 have got um, a shell for snail as a home. And if you pull them out of the shell, they can, you can just pull them out. <laughs> they panic. They need a home. They need a little protection. Yeah, and they find any object, doesn't matter what it is, <laughs> and they will adopt that object as a home. Um, but it, it would have taken too much, uh, too much space. Yeah. 
But I, I like I, the, the good thing is about the crabs is that you sort of when you were watching it, you never felt like it was the same crab, like yeah. over and over. It was, you knew you just got that was the species yeah. that was it. Like one even gets eaten at one point in it or something, right? Spoiler alert. Sorry. Yeah, no, the crabs need to be there for for light touch. Um, also. How, um, at what point did you think, okay, this needs a bit of like something to... Oh, immediately from the beginning. Right, okay. Yes. Um, contrary to my, what appears from my recent films, I actually really enjoyed doing lots of funny things in, in older work. Yeah, yeah. Um, the crabs also had another function, two other functions. They, um, you know, you tell the story over quite a lot of time. It's not happening in one week. It's, yeah. And you need um, s- scenes which break... The, the, um, the moment mm-hmm. um, which uh, help with the transition from one period to another period and finally also the crabs at, at several occasions they, they clear, the film clearly shows that crab eat little dead animals mm. dead fish or dead, yeah, yeah. A dead uh, baby turtle and the presence of death had to be just ordinary nor- normal everyday mm. occurrence yeah. um, just to remind people that, that that's, that, that's how it really is yeah so in in that sense, the crabs were useful too, and I think they're brilliant creatures. They, yeah. It's their eyes, those little <laughs> yeah. black sticks on top of their body. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, interestingly, the animator who was specialized on the crabs it was a very young uh, a lady, a, f- a French lady, Sophie, and she herself is quite slow and <laughs> quiet. And yeah. but when she animated crabs, she was very. Very snappy and spiky. Yeah. Oh, they're so good. <laughs> like just like they pause for a bit and then they just like scuttle off. It's like yeah, yeah I love those characters. Uh, so you you did set up a studio. Yeah, in sorry, I, I forgot your question. Um, so once it was approved, the the animatic was totally approved. Um, there was a, a break of about a year when they had to collect the money, and then um, by that time the the studio was actually chosen already. The final stages of the development were already done with the help of the studio. It was Prima Linea in... in Prima Linea is based in Paris, but they also have a studio in Angoulême. Angoulême is a city in France where there's a high concentration of uh, animation studios and graphic novel artists mm. and co- comic strip artists. It's a city that invented, reinvented itself as a, as a visual art city. They have a, that big... Uh, comic festival there exactly yes they have the comic festival of of Europe I would Mm. say and uh, by itself it's just a small town uh, quiet town there's nothing very striking about it it's a lovely town I I felt comfortable but the fact that you work flat out on a feature film in a quiet town where everybody lives within walking distance from the studio actually really worked for me Oh, did you have to go there? To yes, oh, yes I lived there for years. Oh, right. Because um, there was talk about doing it in Paris, and, you know, it's just like in London. You, Some of some of us would commute an hour or, year, or even an hour and a half to go to work, and in quite stressful circumstances, noise and, and, mm. and lots of movement, and that creates a whole different ambience. Yeah. I would have done it, and we would probably have done a very similar film, but the fact that we we were just calmly in a small town just by ourselves, yeah, and we we also became quite a tight community because we, we lots of us were outsiders. We we mm. were not used to live there, so um, we would meet in the in a bar, etc. Nice, that yeah. really worked. And how did you put the team together? Were they all people that you knew before? They were no. Some of them I knew before. 
Um, of, obviously, that was my, my, my first worry. Do, will I find artists who are willing to move to a small town in France? You know, some of them have families mm. or other reasons not to go yeah. to uh, Angoulême. Um, who are comfortable with relatively realistic animation, not um, cartoony, stretch and squash, but um, really quite more more subtle physical language. Yeah. And um, and stay for quite a while. It's not just three or four months job. It's it's um, it's two years for most animators. And so we took a lot of time recruiting them. Already while I was working on developments, people, you know, it's a small community. People hear about this and they contacted either me or, or a producer saying, please have a look at my portfolio. Mm. I've, I've heard you making a film. At one point, I went to Annecy Festival also to literally just to meet people and to ask them. And then I found out that there were quite a few animators who had previously worked on The Illusionist by Sylvain Chaumet, um, a film I admire a lot. I mean, there's a lot of beauty in that film. And those animators were very good. Mm. They, they had very difficult anima difficult animation to do on the illusionists and difficult difficult circumstances mm. and willingness to live in other countries and and as soon as I met one or two, they started recommending others yeah so it became it became relatively easy but we we looked at lots and lots of portfolios, really a lot, and we asked them to do a test animation test for us obviously to see if they were good enough, but mm. also for themselves. So that they know what they're they're yeah. they're um, facing with this job. What was the test? Just to to animate a scene, two day a two day job, or you can do it in one day, but you have to to tell us. Um, I would give them start position of the man and end position of the man, and tell them please animate uh, the key drawings. Um, it was relatively n nothing special. It's just someone standing up. But that to do yeah. that right is actually quite difficult. Yeah, yeah. You you can't hide behind really great cartoony effects. Yeah, yeah. I also did what what was the plan for the film is I gave them some live action footage oh, of yeah. a friend doing that that movement, um, and I explained that that would be part of the um, um, part of the, the working method when we go into full production. Yeah. That for the difficult scenes, the animators would have examples of real actors doing the movements. Yeah, I saw that in the credits, uh, that you had, um, I can't remember how it was credited, but I noticed that there was live action reference yes. shot. Yeah. So for how, how, what percentage of the film did you shoot reference? Oh gosh, Ooh. a third of the, that is of the, fe of the, of the um, human characters. About a third, I would say. Mm. Um, really, the, the difficult scenes. None of the underwater scenes we could shoot. Yeah. So the underwater animation just had to be done by very animators who were very good at, at inventing yeah. uh, that kind of movement. Um, yes, I would say about a third. Right. And we casted genuine actors from right. locally in France, uh, gave them the right clothing, more or less. Um, the woman was important. A woman to do a woman in quite elegant, delicate mm. animation that lots of us find it difficult. I would yeah. find it very difficult as an animator. Um, so we really need good reference material for that. Yeah. And obviously, the question of rotoscoping comes up. Mm. Um, I find rotoscoping a very interesting effect, but it, it creates a very special ambience, which is appropriate in some films. 
and w w would not be appropriate in this film. Mm. Like you feel, uh, experts feel road scope. Road scoping, just in case a um, listener doesn't know, is, is uh, where you literally trace the live action. You copy the live action. Yeah. Or, or you ask a software to do it. And so you don't um, invent movements. You you are quite loyal mm. to what you see. Yeah. And it feels in in if it's well done, it it can be very interesting in some films. If it's badly done, it feels very stiff and and feels unpleasant. Yeah. And what about um, did you ever have it where like because sometimes you can reference like a, a bit of footage and not rotoscope it, but it can, you can almost make the animation feel. Like it was rotoscope because you're almost sort of copying the reference too closely. Did yeah. you ever have anything where you were like, I feel like you've copied it a bit too much? Not that. Luckily, not that. Okay. So basically, some animators, either for artistic reasons or some even some even for reasons of personal pride, uh, prefer not to look at live action too much. Oh, really? They really want to prove that they could do it without live action. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. And especially, so I gave, for instance, one of those, I gave him the swimming scenes. Right. Because he, he felt very proud of saying, I, I can handle human bodies. Yeah. And he, he could. And so he invented literally when a woman and a man meet underwater. Um, I'm not spoiling the film by saying yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And um, at some point they meet and they, they examine each other and yeah. it's almost like a ritualistic uh, dance underwater. Mm. Um, and that's, uh, that's exquisite. That, yeah. I mean, that's very, very difficult. That's very yeah. difficult to get right. Yeah, because you have to get the drawing right, the human body right, but also the actual acting. And the hair. Yeah. And <laughs> the hair, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Julien Dexon is his oh name. Right. He was, and interestingly, he is very much self-taught. He really? did an animation course. But it was a minor course, some a small art college in France, and he's just one. You you get them occasionally. Um, Sylvain Chaumet is one of them. They they just have they just have it. They need to develop it, but they have yeah. it very strongly. Um, so they, some of them imitated the poses of the live action, mm -hmm. but then they accentuate the emotion. Right. Um, they add extra em emotion or they ex add extra movements, etc. And why did you feel like it was uh, important to have a, a kind of realistic style of animation? Because it's, it's by far the most realistic moving film I've seen from you. Yes, true. Although I've done some commercials which were getting close to that for the States. Um, so the AT&T? Exactly. Yeah. So it, it looks like it's an, an evolution in my taste. Mm. Um, that's all I can say, because when I conceived of the design of this feature, which I, I did very initially alone, lots of sketches of the man, etc., um, it was over and over, day after day, it was clear that that was what I wanted. And um, paradoxically, because it's not a style I'll f I would feel comfortable with as an animator, um, and you don't have to be when you're a director. You don't. You, I actually did zero animation. I didn't animate at all. Was you not tempted to do? Yes, of course. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but um, not after a while. Not because I saw that those animators were good. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I thought, let them do it. <laughs> they are much better. Look at that. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, so it was an artistic choice, which I can't explain. It just felt right. But I feel a personal conditioning. When I was a child, I had uh, school books. I'm talking about age of seven, eight, nine, ten. I had school books, which were, some of them were still from before the Second World War. They were just ordinary 
uh, school books but that had survived for a long time. And they were illustrated, and the fashion in the first half of the 20th century was very realist realistic. Beautifully, beautiful, realistic drawings illustrated. And already as a child, I looked at them, and they were so, so beautiful and so impressive. So I think something stayed from that. Uh, so the, uh, the did I see that the head of animation or animation supervisor was Jean-Christophe Lear? Yes, Jean-Christophe Lee. Lee. He, oh, yeah. Yes, he is. In the, uh, he, he. What we chose, and this was um, an agreement between produce the animation producer from Prima Linea, and me, is not to have a head of animation and not to have a head of background and not to have a head of special effects. Um, it may be surprising for a feature, but we just didn't feel ready to appoint someone straight away. And why? Because. The producer always said, this, is, this film is unusual, it's very much a personal film. You wrote the script, you designed it, now you're directing it. It all comes back to, to me, um, he's, he, he would say, uh, well, to, to you, Michael, he would say. And um, if I feel, feel uncomfortable delegating head of animation, he would listen to that. I, I feel really I was very lucky with him, he understood that. And I didn't feel comfortable. I said, I need to supervise all the animation in initially because I'm not sure where it's going because I was uh, sure that the look of the film would be influenced by the quality of the animators, which it was. And I didn't know yet in advance how that would, would work. Um, so after the months went by and the animation, animated scenes came in, and clearly the style started really crystallizing. It became very clear what the style is. And one animator was not only outstanding in his animation, but he was fast. He, he always got the scenes right straight away. Um, and on top of that, he, he was the oldest animator and well respected by anyone. So he, he became very clearly the, the candidate for supervising animator. Mm. And, he, and that was Jean-Christophe Lee. He had he had directed a feature before. I mean, he really knew. What feature is he? It was uh, a, a French feature called Zarafa, oh, right. um, an entertaining feature, um, commercial, and it was not his job. He was he was um, hired as a director, and he had, he had many difficulties, but he did his best. Mm. And he was also animation supervisor on Belleville Rendezvous, is that right? Or uh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about I'm that. not sure about that, but he made a short film, uh, L'Homme à la Gordini, which was very, very, um, very different taste than mine taste, but mm. very well made. Mm. Um, I'm not sure what he did on um, on another feature from Silva Chomet, yeah. Mm -hmm. But he, he was good, so that was solved. The same with background artists. Um, one of the background artists stood out, Julien Demont, um, Belgian, Belgian guy. Um, he, he understood, my, we hardly talked, he understood what I wanted. And he also could propose things that I didn't expect, and I would almost always immediately, immediately like them. So he, he became the obvious choice. Mm -hmm. So he, was he the art director or this lead background? Back backgrounds only. I, okay. I remained the art director. Okay. That's another thing about this film. We, we remained a small crew. Uh, that's something. another thing I'm very grateful for with the producers. Uh, they understood that it's better to have a small crew and a longer production period right. than a large crew, short production period, and a quicker return from yeah. their investments. Right, right. So you was the art director on it? He, no, he was the background no, director. No, no, I was, was the, I was was the, the art, art director, director, yes. 
and it was tough. I, I have to admit, it, and not just to be the art director, but to have that as one of the many hats. Yeah, I had um, I, had, I had other things to to worry about, layouts, um, and there were lots of questions came back to me about the angle of the light and um, about the, um, the amount of detail in the backgrounds because that there, there were very difficult um, mm. things we couldn't solve straight away. The design of the woman took ages, also it was really right. difficult. Um, which is, I think, a tradition in animation. Women are harder to design than men. But I spoke with a female animator, she said, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> not at so all. Just more <laughs> male design. <then>. Yes. <coughs> it's probably... But women are more subtle in, in animation, yeah. or de- definitely in this film, and that's harder to, to get right. Um, so after a while, everything started... Get, people understood their position, their responsibility... Um, their talent and and I understood also the qualities of each animator after, yeah. after a while I, I saw which scenes to give to which animator yeah the art direction in it is so nice like Great, thank you, you did an amazing job like there were um, I think you sort of spoke about it in the BFI but um, I was so impressed with the night scenes that it was just basically just like tonal like it wasn't I'm right, there was no colour in it. They, they were totally desaturated. Yeah, yeah. totally grey, different hues of grey. And it and it and that is exactly what it feels like to be... I mean, maybe not in a, in London or in anywhere where there's light pollution, but like if you have ever been in the countryside and just complete darkness and when your eyes adjust, it is just... Yeah. And it, and it really it really felt like that. And I don't think I've ever seen that in, in, a, in a film before. To, in I any have, film, live I action or anime. I have to admit, Tim, I haven't either and I'm surprised... Yeah. Because it's so obvious. Yeah. If there's no light pollution, and if you're in the middle of the night and you're outside, and it's mostly starlight and some moonlight, mm. it's so obvious that you don't don't see colors at all. Yeah. And it's so natural and it's so beautiful. Yeah. And um, the, the the standard practice to give a blue hue to yeah, the night yeah, scenes yeah, yeah, yeah. or purplish or bluish. Yeah. Um, is fine. It's, it works beautifully in many films. But it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah, and it and it sort of it. I I like that it didn't try. It didn't try and make me feel anyway. Because you could have made it all red or like or all like whatever, like blue or purple. And color can s- suggest emotion, you know. And this this is completely neutral. Mm. It was just like mm. it made him feel so much more lonely, right? Like in in that kind of a context. Uh, and, and even just when you were talking about the grey skies and that, like I just, it's some of the most like, n- without being like hyper realistic, it was some of the most natural colour palettes I've seen in a film, particularly animated. Yeah, it was really, I really enjoyed that. Great. I I, I have a technical question about the water animation. Oh my was God. that, <laughs> especially at the beginning of the film? Unbelievable. How, how did you do that? Was that just out of <laughs> someone's brain or? The film starts with a tempest in the ocean and you see huge waves and, and patterns on the waves. Believe it or not, they were all animated by mostly one guy and I think all together because he, he stopped for, for a while to do other bits of the film. I think all together it must have taken him a year uh, just to do the waves. Because what, in that very, opening scene? Yes, because they are very detailed. Um, but he wanted to, he said... No, I t- don't worry, Michael. I'll I'll take care of the tempest. Oh man! And and he felt he felt um, 
he he felt he could do it, and he he, he, did. he was right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think it's some of the best. Thank you. Kind of large bodies of water animation. Wow, thank in you. A, in the two D film I've ever yeah. seen, uh, I guess so the I'm only comparable thing really is kind of um, like Studio Ghibli films. Do, do yeah, that, there's some st- good stuff like on Ponyo. Ponyo yeah. yeah. But yeah, but they're def- very differently, yeah, very yeah. interestingly, uh, yeah, yeah. what they did there. Yeah, I was, <laughs> yeah, when you, when it starts, I mean, that's how you get, like, you just, like, bang, you're straight into that. And it's it's very, uh, it's very intense. And, like, a part of me, just as an animator, was, like, and a viewer was, like, conflicted because I was watching it just going, oh, this is tense. And then also, like, how do you do that? Like, how can someone animate like that? Uh, yeah, it was amazing. What's the name of the animator who did that? <coughs> What's their email address? Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he is French uh, from Moroccan origin, Mouloud Ousid. You mind if I grab another? And of course, and um, he's literally an effects animator. That's that's his that's his joy. And he did other effects also in the film. And he was the supervising effects animator. And he was very good, very very good. It's rarely that you get a. Uh, 2D animators specialized in effects, but there's mm. a couple of them out there, and yes. some of them are absolutely amazing. Mm. Is it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Another technical question is that it was all done digitally, the production. So yes, we toyed with the idea of doing pencil on paper, like like we've always done, and those, the animatic was done pencil on paper, um, but then. Um, when we we did some test scenes to make sure that we we knew what we wanted and how long how much it would take and so on. Yep. And working on the test scenes, we realized that it was worth exploring um, a very popular tool uh, called uh, TV Paint. Yeah. And to use TV Paint, you have to draw not on a tablet but on a screen. Well, yeah. you can on a tablet. Yeah. It's yeah. boring. Um, you you draw on a screen the same thing, and um, that was a new tool for me and far from intuitive. Um, but on the other hand, I I saw a lot of animators around me who, who were already using it on other productions. Yeah. And lots of them were veteran animators like me, but they had converted and they were very, very pleased with the new tool. Yeah. And um, so we did some tests and it, it was right. It was the right choice. So the whole film, basically, the backgrounds were partly done on paper. Um, the texture, of, especially the textures of the backgrounds were done by rubbing charcoal on paper and literally just messing around with charcoal and with your with your fingers and the flat parts of your palm mm. and and pencil and then it was scanned etc. Oh, and, and <clears throat> would you then like reposition them like on the layout? Or yes, right. Like yes. as a texture. Yes, you you would right. fiddle around endlessly. Um, all the backgrounds had many layers. Yeah, and in or even if ultimately lots of them only had one layer and not even any special effects. Um, you would in charcoal you would create them in many layers the animation was all drawn um, on a Cintiq with TV paint and some small parts of the animation specifically the turtles were done in CG oh yeah and um, the reason was that they're just very very tough to animate by hand yeah because of their shape mm. and textures and, stuff. and they had texture on the carapace and on the legs which is a nightmare to animate by hand mm. and much much more efficient on, on a CG animation. Did you toy with doing them in 2D at all? Um, no, that, that it was quite clear er, early on that they had to be CG. Yeah. Um, and a few birds as well, small birds in the dis- distance. 
um, because there are many birds and oh, yeah. it was much more efficient to do s the smaller birds in CG as wow. well. And finally, there uh, there are a couple of uh, there are a number of bamboo rafts in the film, and some of them turn slightly in perspective, and you you just don't even think about doing that in oh, on pencil or paper. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. has to be CG. Yeah. But of course, always the brief was uh, we use CG, but the overall look of the film should have keep its integrity. Yeah. Only experts can see that it's CG, but. Yeah. But the, the general spectator who looks at film in a relaxed way uh, should not notice the difference. Yeah, and is and was that the first time you were working in in CG? Um, I think it was. I used CG. I used um, some CG on a commercial in the nineties on a Smarties commercial. It was a very oh, minor yeah. job. <laughs> we saw that. Oh, you saw that. BFI. <laughs> I, I was so nice to see all the. The adverts, because there's a lot of stuff I remember from my like, childhood, like the Smarties. Really? One. Yeah, and I, I've, I seem to remember the McAllen one, although I could be like yeah. misremembering it, but I'm sure I remember that one. Yeah. That was great, that one. That was so good. <laughs> what's, yeah. that, what's that amazing AT&T commercial where it's 30 seconds long and it's uh, I think it's a, a, a woman picking up her phone and there's just a voiceover and it says, oh, it's right. really nice to hear your voice. Yes. And then, and then the the other person says, "Yeah, it's nice to hear from you too." Yeah. That's the whole commercial. Yes, it's one of the best commercials oh, great. I've ever seen. It's Very so quiet. nice, yes. so minimal, and it's so like in such a short period of time, it's so powerful. Yeah, yeah which is so rare to see in a commercial. I, I agree, and even rarer to see in the United States. It was for the United yeah. States, um, and that's why um, they stood out in the states. Not only that commercial, but also commercials done by Joanna Quinn and, and other. Mm people usually make short films um, because they wanted what they call artistic commercials that mm. were clearly handmade. They were clearly standing out from mm. the very slick uh, CG commercials. Mm. And they, they wrote, a the advertising agency wrote the stories. Okay. And they approached me after having seen my short film, Father and Daughter. Mm. They said, that's what we want, that mm. look. Mm. And it was my first experience of, uh, instead of being an anonymous animator, Mm. working with producers, etc., um, actually having advertising agency coming to me because they wanted my style. Yeah. So that was that was very interesting. I really enjoyed that. Mm. Where were they produced out of, those AT&T ones? Well, so <coughs> they were made here in London. We actually literally rented a residential house. Oh, we created really? the studio for a few months oh, really? to make that because there, were, there was a series of AT&T commercials. And... Um, they were they were produced by a studio in in called Acme Filmworks in in California in, uh, in Los Angeles. And and so how 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 much uh, how many commercials have you directed? Were you directing before that? And All, altogether, I've lost count. But I made in the eighties. I started in nineteen eighty in London. I had finished my my studies. Um, I'd worked a bit in Spain, and I came here really to. To, to start becoming um, a professional animator. And I started as an assistant animator. Um, there was one particular studio I worked with a lot, and uh, doesn't exist anymore, it's called Richard Purdom Productions. Mm. And Richard Purdom himself was, like in my eyes, like unbelievably, unbelievably talented. He was a very close um, collaborator of Richard Williams. He worked with Richard Williams for many years on commercials. 
and then set up his own studio in 1980 or 79. But I came, I arrived there in 1980. They wrote me a letter again, a letter, yeah, really. or, or rather that was the first letter I ever received, saying we are a new animated studio, which Burden and his wife, Jill Thomas, producer, they said we are looking for freelance talent. We saw your student film. Are you interested? Um, come and have a chat with us. And I started as an assistant animator. Soon I became an animator, and over time I became a director. Um, also in other studios, but mostly with him. And so you weren't represented there. You weren't on a because I suppose the way it works now, mostly is 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 a studio has a roster of represented exactly. talent. Is, no, it is was that, different then. Yeah. Yes, I was anonymous. Uh, I had no problem with that because I really felt I had to learn a lot. Oh, what, like an agency wouldn't choose a director? They'd go, we want to make... They'd contact the studio. and They, they would, would go to the studio. And then the studio would find a director to do it. Exactly. Right, OK. Yeah. Or they have that. already a permanent director in-house. Right. Um, a bit like, yeah, a bit like uh, set up with you, but it would be, really be the studio who had the reputation. Right, OK. Um, but the and AT&T commercials... Change that. I suppose. No, the AT&T commercial was, and I worked for some other studios as well. And AT&T commercial was clearly nothing to do with England, although I lived in England, so they were made here uh, with English animators. And being the director back in the eighties and nineties, how, what was your responsibilities as a as the animation director? Would you animate? Would you have to storyboard? The, I, I can't totally generalize, but there seemed to be a pattern that the the director is usually the main animator. Oh, really? Okay. Not not often also the main background artist. Really? In my case, it was. Uh, actually, I often enjoyed backgrounds even more than the animation, but usually the background art was left to background artist professionals. Mm. professionals. Um, and the director would, uh, col collab uh, of course, collaborate closely with the advertising agency, the director would do the storyboard, the animatic, the layouts, which are part of the animatic, um, lots of the animation, and etc. That wow. That's how I did it at the time. Um, I immediately have to credit Richard Burden because he, obviously, it was his studio, so he, mm. he was with me a, a lot. Yeah. And um, without him, I, I, would I wouldn't have made this feature film. Just yeah. now. I mean, I learned... If I'm professional now, I learned I learned it from him mm. more than from my study years. My study years kind of gave me the initial courage to start, and then as a professional commercial animator, I really felt now I'm now I'm genuinely learning, mm. and not just literally to animate um, better and better, yeah. but to be a professional who works with the team, uh, mm. who works against deadlines, who, who, who is perfectionist in the best quality uh, in, in all stages, etc. Yeah. And did you, did you have to do a lot of like presentation and public speaking and, and stuff with that job as a director? Were you kind of going in and presenting like boards of, of work at agencies and stuff or was that not really part not of Not at all, no. no. Um, I try to remember, there were meetings but they were very, like, just ordinary conversations, like this yeah. one where we would look at sketches or some, something. The At that time, I've lost touch with the advertising agency, so I don't know how much has changed now, but at that time, the advertising agency would almost always have an idea of the graphic style of the mm -hmm. film and would rarely ask the animator to design the film. Usually say, we like this illustrator, we like mm. that artist, we like... Mm. 
that film, whatever, and try to imitate that style. And sometimes the, the genuine artist, like the book illustrator, yeah. would uh, be hired to mm -hmm. do some keyframes. Mm -hmm. uh, right. I think, I think that's relatively similar. Yeah, though. it's relatively well, similar. Well, I mean, you do get stuff where... I've People definitely have done, no idea what they want. Yeah, I've also done jobs where you've, they've got an illustrator to design <coughs> quite a lot of the, um, the project and then they get animators to come in and, and do it. But um, I think it's quite rare that, like... I mean, there are some animation directors who want to be, like, really involved in the production side of things. But, like, generally, you can get animation directors now who just... They don't really do anything. They just direct. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely not expected of you, I think, if you were directing an animation gig now. I don't think you'd be expected to be the animator. Right. Okay, interesting. Mm. How, how come you haven't done commercials <coughs> for... You said you lost touch a bit with advertising, so I'm assuming you haven't done commercials in a while. Is, is it purely because of the Red Turtle, or had you stopped before that? Yes, well, f uh, during the production of Red Turtle, I, I, I couldn't even dream of doing anything else. Before that, I was busy with some short films, and in between short films I made, the last commercials I did were for the United States, as you, as you mentioned, AT&T and United Airlines. Um, I did one commercial for Korea also, and I'm out of touch because I was busy with other things. But to be frank, I've also um, I've, I've evolved. I yeah. enjoy commercials less. Yeah. In 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 the early in the early days, I found all commercials fascinating, and now I've seen them over and over again. Yeah. And it, lots of them are, are, I just don't like anymore. <laughs> Um, it's that's how it is. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. yeah. I yeah. wish I could keep that same awe of every commercial is fantastic, yeah. but it's not there. Partly also to do with the fact that CG animation is not my not my talent. I've not explored that particular approach. I've never played with it, and I'm not sure I, I will. I don't think I will. I don't think I will become a CG animator, and that became a major trend when mm. when I started. To, concentrating on other projects. Mm. So I feel out of touch in that sense also, technically. I think I feel like it's, it's definitely swinging back the other way at the moment, though. Really nice. Yeah, I and, think... And that's why you, you guys are, are active. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, trying to be. <laughs> uh, but, like, I think, I think because of... In a sense, CG, like, in terms of, like, producing work digitally, I think it's kind of allowed, like, people who <clears throat> would have maybe otherwise gone in the direction of like illustration and stuff like that like ex explore animation and there's a kind of like sense of like an indie animation scene where people are doing like really interesting kind of work and I think that's now crossing over back into advertising mm. um, I think there's a lot more 2D animators that are getting into it uh, for the things that set 2D animation apart from 3D so not necessarily the character stuff you know, not not necessarily the kind of work really that that's in the Red Turtle, to be honest, but mm. more kind of like graphic uh, styles. I'd say yeah. that's that's the, that's the biggest trend I've observed yeah, in the last yeah. like ten years or so. People who are who are doing and two D animation for what it kind of does better than three D, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and specifically, and, and not kind of. I think like even when like I would have been studying and stuff like that, which is not that long ago, like ten years ago or something, but that. Um, the the thing would have been like you were inspired by like Disney anime Miyazaki all these kind of <clears throat> things there would have been a general trend but now like 
there's really great animators who probably don't give a shit about any of those kind of things like maybe not interested in trying to be the next Glen Keane or anything like that and in a way it's like quite refreshing because you just see work that you just you wouldn't have seen like 10 years yeah. ago I think. I, th- I think the other thing as well is like nowadays if you want if you're an illustrator who's kind of you know ambition ambitious and patient enough you can kind of almost do animation as a sideline and yeah. kind of like go sideways into that because I think there are fewer barriers to entry than there were yes. before because the technology is more accessible yes I, I agree with that yeah I've noticed that too mm. so the AT&T stuff that was when did that come out that was 80s 90s no, was no the AT&T stuff is early, to, early 2000s 2000, yes, yes. Okay. and then when did Red Tail start in 2007 Okay. So um, then I made a short film called The Aroma of Tea. Ah, I made a commercial also for Korea. Um, I took a break. Um, I've also done teaching on a regular basis. And I've illustrated some children's books also. I just felt like a nice thing to do. It's it's not my main ambition. I think I'm in my heart. I'm, I'm... I'm more an animator, mm. but um, and besides, children books you can't live from them unless you you hit that vein, that that golden yeah. that that golden formula where you can do a whole series of yeah. of, of books. Um, you, all, I, I don't know how many, but like of your films, but I I noticed that like some of them had like funding to be produced. Was that any of it come through Britain? Sorry, what uh, got funding <coughs> in the short films? Yeah, the short films. Um, <coughs> quickly think. Britain, it's it's slightly uh, paradoxical because I learned to be an animator here. I've adopted this as my, my home. Yeah. I've lived in this country nearly 40 years. But I somehow I always got funding from outside Britain. Yeah. I got funding from Holland. Um, there was, maybe still now, but there was definitely... When I did Father and Daughter, there, there was money in Holland. Mm. Um, I got fund. I made one film in France uh, with the studio Folimage, so all the funding was this local. Right. Um, then other film Aroma of Tea. Um, it got funding from Holland and France. I don't think any British money. It's strange because um, I was real, really big admirer of films commissioned by Channel Four. Uh, oh yeah. When yeah. Claire Kitson was still in charge. And I saw so that <coughs> as that is the summum, that's where the animation uh, ar- artists are. Mm. They make films for Channel 4. And in, in the new world, they make films for the National Film Board of Canada. Yeah. That For me, those were the films that I admired. But somehow I never got funding from Channel 4. It, I don't it know. just seems a shame that like it's, <laughs> you know, you've been... You live in Britain, and or then you know, not just you, but many people, and there's there's just not that support. And like one of the, you know, you're definitely held as like a successful, you know, someone, you know, if you uh, if you learn your trade in Britain, to come out of like an industry like and be successful. But all the support has come from France, Japan, Holland. Like I mean, you are Dutch as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just seems a shame that. I've I've looked at that too, and I don't have a clear answer to that. I, it's probably also partly is just chance. Mm. I think um, getting money from Channel Four or the BBC would have could have been an option. It just didn't happen. Yeah, that's one. 
but I've got two huge question marks. One of them is there. there's a lot of talent. There are lots of good schools in England. Mm-hmm. But the feature film industry here is behind uh, compared to other countries. An- yeah. Animated features. Animated features, yeah, of course. I mean animated features. But why, why, don't, why don't you think that there's more animated feature films being made here? I don't understand why. And I know that a lot of talent find, they find their place in the advertising industry, like I did. Um, so that's a market, and England has a huge, has for a long time has had a huge reputation internationally for the quality commercials. Um, I'm not very aware of animated animated series for children. Of mm. course, Peppa Pig is mm-hmm. is doing brilliantly, mm. um, but um, I don't understand why there are not more features. Mm. There, potentially, there is there is something. Mm, Potentially, the, the storytelling, the, the the originality, the talent. Well, I, I mean, I, I suppose that the way that you ended up being able to make a feature film was almost accidental in some ways, Yes, right? in some ways, yeah. Um, but, I mean, for somebody who wanted to make a feature film, an animated feature film in the UK now, like, I, I mean, I don't know where you'd find 10 million euros... Yeah. Um, it de- there definitely doesn't seem to be that kind of money readily available. And there is, I mean, you hear something like Moonlight. I seem to remember hearing a figure like it was four, what was it, four million dollars or something, something really small like that. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, that. I mean that's, you know, 10, 10 million euros is significantly more than that. Mm. And that's yes. not something that, um, and, and that's not a, an expensive film like that sounds like that's yeah, not even very an expensive good value film for, no. yeah. for money um, with, but with an even for say film. six million um, okay now the pound sterling and euro are close but six million pound is realistic some films can be made for that it's it's um, it depends on the style and the subject and um, it can be made I don't know how much um, Ethel and Ernest uh, was but mm. that was made that's I, true when that was finished I thought good at last we've got yeah. the film again and that was made in Britain as well, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. But then, yeah, how, where did the funding come from that? I don't know. Because I, I proposed to my producers, the French and Japanese, saying, how about British co-production? Because they said, um, we may have to find money elsewhere. So in, 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 in the end, they found more in France and in Belgium. Um, for Belgium has a tax haven um, mm-hmm. advantage. And um, they were very just reluctant to start working with England then yeah. mm-hmm. and they didn't want to go into detail it's mm-hmm. some of them had a personality where they kept it was they felt it was their their subject and that it was not up to me to to yeah, yeah. get all the explanations but that's telling in itself you know what I mean like even just seeing that there's a reluctancy to hmm. to want to do that to seems like there, there must be something wrong there you know I don't understand what goes wrong and uh, another I've got another question mark and maybe it's slightly related is that um, you see the feature and feature industry works better for in a country like France but look at their comic strip graphic no- novel industry mm. it's a hundred times better there than here yeah, yeah, it's yeah. huge it's creative it's for all groups of society, all ages. Mm-hmm. It's relentlessly inventive. Um, and somehow England hasn't caught on on that. No. It's really strange. I, growing up in, in Holland, because I grew up in Holland as well, uh, okay. and you do get a, a little bit more access. I mean, especially like back 
in the 90s and stuff, there was way more access to those kind of Belgian comics mm. or yeah. you know, all different kind of age groups and stuff. You actually did, did I see on your IMDb, you did something for heavy metal? Yeah. Did you? Ha- wow. what, what was that? I haven't, haven't been able to track it down. <laughs> for me, heavy metal is two things. It's a magazine and it's a film. Yeah. When a magazine came out, by chance I, I, I was there when the first one came out. I, I saw yeah. it and I thought, what's this? Mm. And it was so new and so yeah. wonderful, so incredible. The, the set up by Mobius. And exactly. Yeah. And, and the Richard Corbin and the Mobius and, and I looked at the artwork and the subjects and the invention, everything. It was like suddenly co- um, comic strips opened, wide opened, new subjects, new techniques, new colors, new graphic styles. Um, that's one thing. Then uh, when I finished my studies, um, I needed a job and they were at the final stages of heavy metal, the feature in London. And I knew someone who worked there and said, uh, any chance they could, they could use another animator? And they said, yeah, sure. So I worked for, I think, two, three months on, on animation, the, the Corbin, Richard Corbin style mm. parts of, of the film. And I was very junior. I mean, yeah, my animation right. was very yeah. basic. Um, it was a job. It was a way of getting to know people. There I met some people who talked about other studios and, mm. and it continued mm. from there. And was Mobius present or involved at all? I never no. met him. <coughs> no. No, no, I yeah. never met him. Um, the film was spread over different countries. Also part of it was made in, in, in uh, eastern Canada. Mm. And uh, we were just a small team on Carnaby Street, I remember, just slaving away on, on the Richard Corbin. It was Hallison Bachelor was heavily involved in, in I don't think I'm aware of this film at all yeah I, I haven't actually seen it I, I'm more aware of the comic than the film but yes, I've definitely seen film, something a trailer or something like that I've, I've known numbers for the film but clearly it's it's not a film that is in everybody's memory right. <laughs> is it good? Um, I saw it once when it came out and um, there were good bits but on the whole it was I felt like um, not my favorite <laughs> kind of film. Some of, some of those films, some of those '80s films, like um, Ralph Bakshi and stuff. There's there's interesting graphic things happening, mm. but as a film, they don't like hang together that way. It's, well, it's interesting to see an yes. adult film. That's a that's a that's Fritz a thing I wanted to. Fritz yeah, the yeah, Cat exactly. was an eye opener. Sure. Um, relatively good, but the same. Ralph Bakshi wanted to make Lord of the Rings, yeah. and that was relatively not good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what's his name? Robert Crumb hated yes. uh, hated it. And, oh really? Uh, oh, yeah, I didn't yeah, know. There's a documentary yeah. where he, I think he calls him a schlockmeister. Oh well, really? Flip, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Look at those films. Like, and you always hear like, oh, why is an adult like animation um, a thing? You know, like particularly in like Britain and Europe and even America and stuff. And then you look at the attempts at it, and I'm like, oh, you guys fucked it up so bad. Like, <laughs> you've ruined it for everyone. <laughs> was, was this a big thing when you were making The Red Turtle? Like, how much of a conversation was there around making a, a film for grown-ups? Yes, uh, very little conversation, but um, literally the producers asked me, so, okay, so who do you imagine will be the audience for this film? And I remember saying, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But in my heart, I felt it was more adult and children, mm. but compatible for children at the same time, mm. but not specifically aimed at families and kids. 
and that's that's what it has become. Yeah. Not so much because of sex or violence. Um, there's no sex, as you know. Mm. And ah, damn, I spoiled it. <laughs> 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 um, there's violence, which I think is is quite for some kids can be quite for very young yeah. kids can be quite sure. intense. But uh, large parts of the films are are relatively slow or quiet. Mm. Um, and for very young kids, that for some young kids can be. A challenge. Have you had any response from like I've, kids seeing? I've been so. in a couple of screenings in Paris mm. where there were mostly children, from five six onwards, and I was very nervous. Mm. Um, the first screening I went to, um, there were parents, but mostly kids. And when the kids entered, the cinema had a brilliant idea to put a paper bag on each chair full of sweets and, mm. and uh, apple juice. <laughs> mm. And I thought, yeah, that's great. The yeah. noise of the paper bags yeah. will and be overwhelming. And they're going to be hyper after <laughs> Yes. Mm. And I, I was annoyed that the cinema thought would, wanted to create a party ambience. Mm. And I was annoyed. But then suddenly I realized... <laughs> Hey, wait a minute! Look, when his children are really concentrated, there's there, there there's less ambient sound from paper bags, yeah, right. and when they are not concentrated, they will start moving their it's a good yeah. and I, I had um, a way of measuring their attention, yeah, yeah. and to my relief, they were actually very concentrated. Oh, really? And because some of the films are very of the film, some moments in the film are very quiet. The last thing you want to hear is mm. people talking or paper rustling and things like that I suppose as an audience you've kind of been educated towards what you what you've been seeing like in <coughs> film and filmmaking and stuff like that and I suppose as a kid you wouldn't really have a context for what's a slow film mm. what's a fast film and you're just going to be abs- absorbing it in, in you your do own because pace, kids like. watch television oh right yeah. and it's very fast yeah that's true um, and it's faster than over the years has, the speed has increased mm. um, faster than my personal taste I like fast animation can, can be so nice and so mm. funny but um, I th- sometimes I watch film and I think the filmmakers are desperate to keep the attention of the audience yeah. they think that if they, they have a slight pause in the dialogue or a slight moment of quietness that, that the spectator will disconnect from the mm. film mm. and maybe, maybe they're right um, so I was aware that our, our project, The Red Turtle, um, c- could be challenging. I was right. aware of that. The fact that the Japanese really loved the relatively slow pace, um, I think, was reassuring. But then the Japanese are the Japanese. How, has it been released in Japan? It has in September. Um, Unfortunately, the same day as another animated film, Your Name, by Makoto Shinkai. Uh, the, most, uh, the most successful, the most successful <laughs> film animated of film of all time. <laughs> <laughs> it was a roller coaster. It aimed at the young generation, the coming no, of age generation. Um, lots of uh, spectators would come back over and over again to see Your Name. Yeah. Um, it's a good film. I enjoyed it. Um, it's I very interesting. It, yeah. uh, I can recommend it. It's full of very interesting things. Yeah. And I, I liked his previous work too, but um, who directed it? The uh, Makoto Shinkai, a young, quite a young filmmaker. What other film was that? Did he do Wolf Children? Voices from no. a Distant Star, wasn't it? Um, he did. Gosh, it's something like millimeters. Oh, please, please look it up. I forgot the titles. And in fact, relatively slow films. Yeah, he did Voices of a Distant Star, five centimeters per second. Five centimeters. The Garden. Yeah. Of words and no, your I've name. not seen any of them. Yeah, yeah. I think the first film he did, he made. It was one of the first uh, 
is it a feature? It's, it's, it's a relatively long, longish short, I think. Uh, and it was just it was just him. He did it all on his own. Backgrounds, animation, voiceover. Wow. Him and his girlfriend, I think. Wow. The voiceover is bonkers. So mm-hmm. what it did, it, that just sucked up everyone's money then. So I'll, did it perform, did it perform know, well at all? I mean, my my hope when I was making the film, I wanted the film to do well, obviously. Um, but I was specifically thinking of France because we were in France and we yeah. had I had French colleagues around me, and I was thinking of Japan. I really wanted to do well in Japan, yeah, um, because I just love Japan. I'm, I'm, um, I've been a tourist in Japan before starting this project. Yeah. Um, I feel I feel an affinity with Japanese yeah. art. And um, I realized only afterwards, in fact, how much I hoped that Japanese audience would really, really uh, appreciate the film. The press, so I went there for, for interviews and for promotion. The press was fantastic. Studio Ghibli was surprised. They said, my God, the press. Really? <laughs> yeah, they, they, were really, they were really positive. And then the film came out. We had a nice premiere. It was really nice. They... they Studio Ghibli did their, really their best, especially Suzuki, to promote the film. Now, very nice taste for poster, some some nice side product, uh, side things like a, a nice book. Um, but the numbers they said the numbers are disappointing, uh-huh. and mostly the young viewers didn't turn up. And the more mature viewers and the film buffs did turn up, on average, but not the the big numbers of of young film right. viewers. So do you think that do you think you found do you think you know you you said they asked you at the beginning what was the audience for the film do you think you know the answer to that question now I think it is for adults and totally compatible for children from year 6 onward depending maybe on mm. on a community and, and on the country and um, it has been confirmed so far in my experience from the feedback I get. Mm. From I mean, some journalists write about it as saying it's definitely adult. Um, others mention children. Um, the, the audiences I've been with so far had mostly adults by far. But um, I know, it, for instance, in France, it has toured in the smaller cinemas in the, in the smaller cities. And there have been many, many children. Mm-hmm. The French actually, in a promotion, they chose a poster that aimed more mm-hmm. at parents of young children. Mm-hmm. If the parents of young children see the poster, mm-hmm. they, f- they feel that the film is relatively safe mm-hmm. um, and not too, too aggressive or too, too bizarre. Um, so they, uh, the, the French were conscious that they wanted the film to work for children. Mm-hmm. And are you aware of how many screens it's been released on in various different territories and stuff like I imagine France it, it was it was yes. shown in quite a lo- lot of cinemas in France it, it did very well in Holland it did very well oh, which was surprised because it did much better than the Studio Ghibli mm. films in the past mm. um, I think the Dutch were not too much into animated features mm. until recently and this film had a Dutch director. I mean, yeah. I still got my Dutch yeah, yeah. passport, <laughs> and that must have helped. Yeah. They I were saw, they were proud of, of it. Yeah, I saw you you were featured on like I, just searching your name. You're featured on quite a lot of big Dutch like mainstream newspapers. I see. Like yes, uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not just animation things. It was like you know big, you know the equivalent of the Times or whatever. Uh, yeah, they they were they were. I think they were proud of having a Dutch director. Suddenly that's it was good. a Dutch film. Suddenly mm. yeah. we were. Um, in total, only two art, Dutch artists working on the film, right. one animator and me. 
but um, it's fine. I mean, I'm delighted. <laughs> we'll have to sell I, those tickets. <laughs> I, I mean, one of my short films, Father and Daughter, won an Oscar. That f- hmm. the, the British can be blasé about Oscars because the British have earned, <laughs> the films have earned lots of Oscars. Right. The Dutch haven't. Yeah. It, it immediately goes into history. Right. Wow, right. an Oscar. But you, you've been nominated for two Oscars. You've won the Audience Award at Cannes uh, and you've won an Oscar so yeah, my short films were two Oscar nominations, yeah. including one winner, and this uh, film, The Red Turtle, was nominated also mm-hmm. this this spring. Um, and so you're Zoot- clearing up for the Dutch. Zootopia won what? You're clearing up for the Dutch. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, that they are sensitive to that, and I understand mm-hmm. that. It's it's very different when you're a small country and not an English-speaking country mm-hmm. to to have an Oscar nomination. It's very special. Sure. Um, then in the States, I haven't got the figures yet. It's done relatively well. It's seen as an art house movie, of mm-hmm. course, not as a blockbuster. Um, and it has done relatively well in the oh, States. Oh, no, I, I mean North America oh, yeah. and the States and Canada. Um, I need to find the figures for other countries. I think in Italy it did quite well. Um, I'm going In July, I'm going to Brazil and um, want to know how, how well it did there. It won... It won uh, two major awards in Brazil. Wow. Uh, no, on the whole, I'm very pleased. And my mm. producers, they, they, they're smiling. Mm. They got their investment back. But they're also, right. it's, they never saw it as a blockbuster either. They are part <coughs> of the film. They want to be part of their portfolio to, mm. to say to people, we produced that, that film. Is it encouraging enough to, to continue that tradition? Like, or this, this sort of thing that uh, Ghibli have started, like co-producing with yeah. Europe. Is that, have they seen enough from that that are like, this is a good thing, we should continue to do that. Um, well, if literally, if you're talking about Studio Ghibli, we have not, talk, we have not talked about future at all. Partly, I think, it's just that I'm, I'm still concentrating on uh, promotion. I know, but I mean, like, still. just, like, even if Ghibli want to do that with a different director, or, like, yes. they're just like, this is an initiative we should continue. Yes. You know? But I don't even know that. Oh, okay. If, they, if they're interested to continue... Uh, I heard one journalist asking Suzuki, is this the start of working with non-Japanese directors? And Suzuki said that they chose me because of the work I'd done. And it so happens that I'm not Japanese. But right. it was not the fact that I'm not Japanese that, right, that right, was the main reason. Right. Um, but I was a, a couple of months ago, I was at a big pitching event for animated features in Bordeaux, mm-hmm. in France. And it's called Cartoon Movie, where animated features look for producers and look for funding. People propose um, already quite a lot of development, mm-hmm. um, and it it struck me, and it struck even the organizers, cartoon movie, that a lot of them were adult orientated really? animated features. A lot of them were not CG animation. Um, a lot of them were slow budget, low budget. Um, I mean, they were about refugees and the Second World War. They were really serious subjects. Mm-hmm. There's suddenly there's an opening that's bigger than ever mm. and uh, as, as you said earlier adults uh, animated features have existed um i would even call who framed roger rabbit as, as an mm. example yeah, 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 yeah. um fantastic planet or la, la planète sauvage was very very special in i think in the 70s and fritz the cat and walls with bashir etc but now suddenly there's a huge awareness of um the fact that animation is not anymore only for families. Mm. There will always be, but there's also a very mature 
branch of animation for older audiences. And there's such a thing as anim- animated documentaries also. Mm. Mm. Of course, yeah. yeah. It's interesting because we talk to lots of different people on this podcast and people have, depending on who you talk to, have very different opinions about the state of the industry for adult, uh, grown-up feature films. Um, and I've heard people say, oh, you just, you know, it's, it's so much harder to get a, a feature film made for grown-ups in animation than it is in, in live action. Um, which I think is, you know, again, coming back to the sort of the minimum amount of money you're going to spend making an animated feature film probably has to do with that. Yes, I think um, so too. But uh, it, it made me think, have you ever considered live action? Um, I've considered the question and every time the answer was immediately no. <laughs> really? That is not my ambition. It's just not there. And frankly, I don't think I would be would have the skill. Now probably a bit more than ever, but still, I don't have the skill to work with actors. I just don't. And um, in, in what sense? Um, it's just not my... Um, it's outside my territory. I don't feel... I watch a lot of live action yeah. um, with passion and admire, um, especially auteur um, films, a lot, mm. but somehow I, I don't see it happening with me. But then there's no ambition either, so I don't feel driven in that direction. Um, well, if you got a letter from a studio, <coughs> Paramount, <laughs> it's not quite yeah. the same, is it? Yeah. <laughs> it's unlikely that I'll receive a letter. Yeah. But yeah. no, it's not, it's not excluded, of course, because yeah. I've su- often surprised myself that I've done things that I, w- I, I, w- I didn't think I would do. But I see myself very much a, as an illustrator. I mm. like the line. I, I think it's very nice that you chose that as the title of your of your association, the line. I love the line. I think it's stylizing reality with lines and with flat surfaces and with simplifications, artistic simplifications. Mm. I find that beautiful. I'm basically um, a comic strip artist who puts the comic strip into Mm. an extra dimension of movement and sound and Mm. music. Um, That's how I I see my my field. Mm. It's interesting question to be posed with though because like think just thinking about it in my head now like uh the red turtle c- you could have made that as a live action film yeah like, I that's, think it that's something hope- i thought with, with the, lots with of the kind special of effects quite, yes. quite realistic yeah. even that much really like it w- i would have found it totally boring to work on that seriously i love the story but i saw the story as as a hand-drawn animated film yeah if they, if even if studio ghibli had said you know you know we've been thinking about it this film has to be cg I would uh, I would have really really had a problem with that. I would yeah. have said I can't do it. Ask someone else. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm glad it was made as an animated mm. thing, but it's like your 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 mind obviously works in that way where, like I think you could produce a live action project because that for me there was nothing. If you just read that as a script, I don't think you would have inherently gone, mm, this probably you. would have suited... I see what you mean, yes. ...suited animation yeah, there. I hear you. Um, um, yeah, but... yeah, that's It's how not it an is. ambition of yours, isn't it? It's not an ambition of mine to do live action in any mm. any length, even short film. Mm. Um, I've seen, yeah, some filmmakers clearly have done it. Um, Piotr Dumala, uh, Sylvain Chomet, um, some filmmakers see it as a natural progression mm. from... Has Chomet done live action? He's, he has done, I think, 
he has definitely done a short live action about Paris as oh. part of a feature project oh. and a complete live action film in France also. I've got oh. the title. Didn't oh, yeah. Zoom it. Um, and, and so I, I'm, I'm kind of curious about what you, um, what you, what, what kind of stuff you like. What do you, what's I was going to ask you, you that. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, you want to answer first or shall yeah, I? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I could talk to you all night about stuff. Yeah. Like that, yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, in, in ideal circumstances, if by miracle you can really do what you want passionately, what you want to do more than anything else. Yeah. What 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 would that oh, well, be? Uh, so, so, yeah, okay, right. Um, are, are, you, are you talking about formats or technique, format, um, length, uh, content? Um, would you go into video games? Would you go into live action? Anything? I, I I think for me personally, like I love the feature film format more than anything else. Like I can't, I don't know how relevant it's going to be um, yet going forward. Like I hope it stays relevant, but for me, like. There's nothing, it's just a perfect length, it's a perfect, you know, like, self-contained moment of um, being engrossed in something. And I like the idea that people get in cars and drive to rooms and sit all together and watch it in a dark room, like, all that kind of stuff I absolutely mm. love. So, for me, it, it, I would love to try and... Live action feature. Not necessarily live action, probably okay. animated. Yeah. Mm. But, yeah. And you would write a story as well? I, I don't know. Right. So I'll wait for Studio Ghibli to send me a letter. <laughs> yes. Uh, how about you, Tim? How about you, Tim? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd, yeah I, I agree. Like, I'd love to do a feature. Um, I'd definitely love to do something like that wasn't... That maybe like something more adult, whether it be like live action or animated. Just I suppose that I'd, I'm itching to do live action stuff at the moment, to be honest. Um, but I've always sort of done a bit of hybrid animation live action stuff mm. um, I'd like to do a series as well I've got massively into series I used to be just all about films and I never really liked series I didn't like that how much you had to commit but then I watched I'm what, like watching some really good stuff at the moment and I just realized that like you can tell such better more complex stories over a longer period than like if you tried to you know if you tried to do it as a feature you'd yeah. have to rush things you'd have to mm. be like oh okay well this isn't it's slowing the pace down let's just chop this scene out mm. and it's like I'm sure so much good stuff gets chopped out of features just because the running length you know and yes. I think uh, I, I sort of like the idea of making something uh, based on the uh, fitting the um, the format to the story so like if I had a story that only should be 20 minutes then it should just be 20 minutes yeah. if it's something that probably could fit into an hour then let it be a feature if it's bigger then it should be mm. a six parter or something like that um, I, we, I watched uh, The Night Of recently have you seen that? And that's what, which film? It's, it's a series called The Night Of Okay, no, I've and I think that. it's only four parts or six parts which is really small for like an American series and I like that it was like well they didn't try and make it a season long thing it's like this is how long it needed to be and that's good I think enough. there's a lot more of that now isn't there there's yeah like variable length episodes variable length series like yeah and, and I think in a lot of ways series are the sort of format of the moment right now yeah you know, they're because Amazon and Netflix and people yes. have found ways of distributing them like I heard some insane stats about how many 
homes have uh, Netflix around the world. Mm. It's like 160 million people in the, you know, like if you put something up, I, I don't know what the deals are like, but if you put something up on Netflix and that's the, um, you know, that's the, the, the scope of, of, of people that can uh, watch that. That's, mm. yes. I don't know, that's a, a really incredible uh, no, exposure. No, Live action series have acquired the quality of, of feature films. Mm. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd love to do something like that where it was uh, something a bit definitely long form, or just but have the freedom to be able to make it in whatever way suits the idea mm. best. You know. And would you do you imagine you would write a story or be part of the story writing? Or um, I've I think in everything I've made I've always collaborated with people, so I don't think mm. that that I'd want that to change. I don't really need, I don't need to be the person who does everything. Uh, even if I come up with an idea, I'd like to... I'm very un, unsure of myself, so I kind of like to lean on people's opinion who I respect, you know, to, to, sound, to sound off. Um, so, yeah, not, yeah I'd, like to, I'd like to be... Uh, I don't know how appealing that it would be to, for someone to give me an idea and, and, or a finished script and to say, direct it. I'd, maybe if the idea was amazing... Hmm. That would be appealing. But and if they would ask you to make it your own, that would appeal <coughs> to you. It it really have to depend on the yeah. the subject. If it was like such a good, great thing that you just would want to do it. I mean, you, mm. we see it in advertising as well. When like a project comes in, I mean, you, you rarely ever write. You might have a bit of influence on the script or something like that. But sometimes you see a a brief come in, and you're like, oh yeah, I want to make that. Mm. You're inspired yes. to do it, even though it's not your idea. Yeah. Um, I suppose it would have to be like that. I have to say, uh, sorry to interrupt you, there are still people who say advertising is like prostituting yourself or it's like compromising. I've done commercials where I was really happy. I found mm. a commercial interesting, mm -hmm. the approach, the story, the, the, uh, I, I'm, I, and I, I, I'm still very proud of, of having worked on that commercial. Mm. Yeah. And I think in Britain we are very we are very lucky with that, the commercials industry. Yeah. Or we were maybe, I hope, still now, but... Uh, it's, it, <laughs> it, I think it's just up and down. I think the, you, there's always going to be like good examples and bad examples. Yeah, and they're bad examples. Yeah, yeah. I, agree. I, yes. I, I think that it, whenever there's too many links in the chain, there's always going to be mm. more potential for breakdown and mm. stuff like that. And so we, yeah. you do see that, but yeah, it's probably the biggest thing that we come come up against in advertising as opposed to other industries is just bloat basically too many people involved in right. the, yeah. in the, the decision making and meetings and unclear chain of command and stuff like that but and, and even if you just look at it from like a schematic if you looked at all the people in charge and everyone has to you have to get an approval from that guy that guy that guy you can just see like and it, all, everyone has to say okay at this date and that date and that date if you just looked at it on a bit of paper you'd be like this is there's no way it's going to work and it just create, yeah, and it doesn't, uh, and that's where the frustration comes from, yeah. generally. Right? Um, but 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 sometimes you do you have the right configuration of people and everything just lines up and it kind of flows and, and, then and that's, that's really really nice. Isn't that great? And on top of that, you can make a living from from yeah it. yeah, exactly. and a nice living as well. Yeah, because um, people idealize shorts. They say, oh, it's so nice to make shorts. It's poverty. It's not yeah, easy yeah, yeah. to to. You can't live from shorts. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, except for the zero point zero zero one percent. Yeah. Um, like Bill Plimpton, and it's um, and often you put your own money into it, or you work 
on its weekends and mm -hmm. evenings while you have a daytime job. Yeah. That's really tough. Yeah. I, I guess the, what I was getting to before when I was asking what do you like, it's like what are you, what are you watching? What are you sort of consuming in terms of culture and media yeah. nowadays? Interesting. Because I, I, I look at your work and I can't imagine you like you know, watching Only Way is Essex or Homes Under the Hammer of an evening. I, like, don't even, I haven't even heard of that. <laughs> What's that? Exactly. What are they? Uh, TV, TV programs. TV, I Actually, I've, I've, I used to be an avid TV, avid TV watcher in the 80s. Yeah. And to my surprise, I never watched. And now, like, altogether, probably a couple of hours per year, mm. um, I watch lots of DVDs. Right. I, I get a lot of free DVDs, okay. uh, luckily. Yeah. Um, I watch a lot of feature films and and mostly uh, live action mm. um, from from different countries, different cultures. Um, there's also something else, else that really two other things that really inspire me are still are the comic strips. It's oh, yeah. I, I would have nearly become a comic strip artist. What's good um, at the moment that you're into? What have I seen recently? Gosh. Um, well, immediately a name comes to mind, but he he just died sadly a few uh, like uh, two months ago. Uh, Taniguchi, um, Japanese comic strip artist. He was about seventy. Was it Jiro Taniguchi? Yes. Yeah. yeah, he worked with Mobius as well, did. Yes. Um, or did he? Possible. Yes. Yes, he did on a comic strip. And I sometimes think that he was more popular in France than in Japan because he, he had great finesse. It was not about just about fast sword fights and and action action mm. there were lots of his stories are psychological and he made one book which is one of in my top 10 forever called um in english it's called the man who walks or the walking man or something like that and it's basically so just someone walking around tokyo and looking around him and there's no real narrative oh, and wow. yet you're totally with him and he philosophes he he thinks about life a bit, but there's very little text, and you can't make a commercial you can't make a comic strip like that, but he can yeah yeah um that's he is one of my heroes, gosh, there's so many mm. um still mubius uh, mubius was a genius mm. he was a genius he yeah. really was he's still so influential now like you, I think so too you see so many yeah. like young artists and you're like, oh, they work so cool and then you're you'll flick, I'll, I'll fall on, on like an old, I don't know, Mobius drawing on Tumblr, and I'll be like, oh, that's where he gets that from. Right? Yeah. Completely. Uh, Especially but, now, I think. Yeah, yeah. But there's a huge um, indie um, movement of comics where a person speaks about his or her own experience in an illness or in a particular country. Oh, yeah. And you may know the books by Guy de Lille. Um, it's one called Jerusalem, one called Pyongyang. Oh one, yeah, yeah. One he went to Shenzhen. North Korea, right? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I've read that one. Yeah. And he he was an animator a long time ago. Actually, yeah. we even worked together at one point. Oh really? And he does travel comics in a way, but yeah. with a very fine, dry sense of humor. Yeah. And I I, th I just I, those are the books that I read several times. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot, a lot out there. I mean, even I was in Helsinki recently. There's an underground comic industry or or let's say independent comic industry where people it's very individualistic full of character when people just talk about their lives and yeah. um, I was in Gene Geneva a few years ago the same there Geneva is a posh city with very um, in rich international organizations mm. but there's a whole hidden comics industry a whole really? market there it's sort of it's growing a little bit in the UK 
like there is a bit of that going on here. Um, there's a really good podcast called Make It Then Tell Everybody, and the guy Dan Berry, he sort of like interviews a lot of these kind of indie comic artists and stuff. Um, it really opened my eyes up to how many people there are sort of doing it. Mm. But there's just not, I don't think there's the interest to make like these for these young kind of comic artists to make a decent living. No, I yeah. think it's, mm. it's again a bit of a problem distribution as well. Yeah. Just because yes. you don't have comic book shops here in the same way that you yes. do. In but you would if there was an interest for it. You know what I mean? It's almost like, they, I don't think. They publish on the net, but I'm not where I hear about mm. it, but I'm not very aware yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. So you 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 were talking about getting DVDs, uh, screeners and stuff. I imagine that's because you won an Oscar. Is that if you if your film wins an Oscar, you're not automatically a member of okay. the Academy. You still have to apply, and the chances are high. Mm. But s- several members have to approve of your yeah. um, application. And once you're a member, you always you 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 pay. I don't remember exactly three hundred fifty or something dollars a year to be a member. Uh, so you get lots of free copies of the, um, the films, every, especially every winter. But you're also paying a handsome amount of money to be yeah. a member. Um, there are other perks. Do you have to vote if you're a member? You don't have to vote, you can, yes. Right. Um, and there are other advantages. There are screenings all year round, um, including here in London. And I've missed out on all of them because I was just too busy. Right. So if you're in California, it really makes sense to be a member. But mm. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not good person to be a member of anything and I'm got an independent streak but there I'm very very pleased to receive screeners mm. of films you don't even you see the title you've never heard of it mm. you yeah. think, what that must like, be great. like Moonlight yeah. for instance yeah. I have no idea really? okay let's give it a try oh my god <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah those are uh, those are you get between I don't know 70 80 and 100, wow, 100 yeah. uh, films cool and not all of them are, are your taste, but that's a very nice moment. Will you watch all of those as well? Um, I watch the majority, yes. Mm. And, and there where I have a doubt, then I go on IMDb and I check out articles oh, yeah. if, if it's really my cup of tea or, or not. And how do you watch stuff? Do you, uh, do you have a TV at home? And you yes, in my case, you receive them as Blu-rays or DVDs and you watch them at home. Mm. And they are heavily into streaming uh, films now, and I've okay. watched... And and it's much more practical, of mm-hmm. course. So I watched a number um, on my uh, on my computer screen. Mm. Um, I chose this year to watch all the animated features. Mm. There were twenty six, more than last year were sixteen, and the year before even less. Mm. So it was really a rich year for animated features. Mm. I was just curious. I had missed out of all the the good films for. F- I mean, I was just working, working, working. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was some films I had to fast forward animated mm. features because they, they were, <laughs> they were just not <laughs> not interesting yeah, enough. Yeah. And of course I watched Zootopia and Moana yeah. and Kubo and mm. and um, that was really interesting. Mm. And the taste is still very much for CG, yeah. lots of dialogue, fast storytelling, yeah. um, pretty moralizing. Mm-hmm. And um, Zootopia was a clear clear candidate to win the Oscar. Uh, in in what sense? Because Zootopia, because like for about a, <coughs> a decade, only CG Californian films have won. Yeah, with one exception, one year, and um, it's be, the, the voters are American mostly. There are some non-Americans, but mostly American. Mm. Um, probably lots of them know someone closely related to a particular mm. animated film, mm. 
and it speaks to them. It, mm. they, they speak American to yeah. the Americans yeah. in those films. And I say, I say this without judgment there. Yeah. Zootopia is very well made. It's very strong. It's not 100% my taste, but yeah. there are many exquisite moments mm. in, in that. And they are good at that. <coughs> and with... Very, me. Yeah, sorry. Very interestingly, they chose two non-American films amongst the five nominees, including our film and My Life as a Courgette, mm. um, or as they call it, My Life as a Zucchini. They're two small-budget indie films mm. uh, included alongside the big CG films with budgets 20 times larger. Mm. Mm. Um, they didn't select Finding Dory, which would be a typical typical nominated film and instead they chose two indies from Europe so there is a curiosity mm. uh, for in, in amongst the academy members for films which are non-CG and with Cannes do they is that a similar thing where you if you get the it was the a certain regard right yes the, the award that you get does that mean you're a member or no it, Cannes, doesn't work like that? how did they select the film there's a selection committee Good question. I, I knew um, a year ago, but I forgot. There's a selection committee. Cannes is not very strong on animated features. They, cho they choose very few every year. They still see them a bit They like don't have them. a separate category for it, do they? They don't, no. But I quite I, like that, though. I have a small hesitation because Cannes is not one competition like the Oscars or BAFTAs. It's like a cluster of competitions. Okay. And my competition was called Un Certain Regard, which tends to look for the, um, the really more original films, the unusual films. And the main category for that where the winner gets the Palme d'Or is just the, the, strong, the strongest films in general. Mm. Uh, so I was very proud to, to have the rhetoric selected for a certain regard, mm. because that, once it's in there, the press immediately focuses on that, mm. and then the film is born. Mm. Um, and because so many films come out every year, so many a film, a beautiful film can disappear quickly if, if the promotion is is not not strong. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, it won an award. It was great. It was funny because the tradition is that you go to Cannes as a filmmaker. You go to Cannes just for a couple of days mm. to show your film, talk with the press, um, do maybe a few uh, lovely events, lovely evenings. And then you go home because they don't pay for you to, to stay there all the time. And yeah. it's very expensive. So I just got home after a few days. I showed my film, mm. had a great time. Mm. And that was Friday. On Saturday morning, they called me saying, be here tonight for the award ceremony oh, tonight. <laughs> and Did you go back? I went full speed to, um, to Heathrow. <laughs> my plane was delayed big time. I like think doing up your bow ties. Yeah, I, I, was in my, I was in my smoking. Oh, really? Yeah. You <laughs> sat on the plane in... In my smoking. No. Yeah, I, I knew that this was going to be very tight. <laughs> and the, um, the plane was delayed, I think an hour and a half, and I was really nervous. So um, the organizers there, I had a lot of, of course, a lot of support from the, from the distributor. They um, arranged for me to have a taxi from the airport to which is like half an hour, it's still quite distance. It was a motorbike taxi. I sat on my tuxedo in my smoking on the back of the motorbike really? to the event. A motorbike taxi? I got, I got um, in the uh, theatre literally a couple of minutes before the start. Wow. And a few minutes later, they announced that the, the Red Turtle had won a prize. Wow. So yeah. And it's amazing. important, you have to be there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they paid for everything, of course. It's oh, uh, part, of the, oh, wow. part of the game. Oh, that's amazing. It's so funny. Yeah. 
Come in with a motorcycle helmet. <laughs> collecting your award. <laughs> the motorbike rider was brilliant. I really? loved it, yes. Mm-hmm. They were experienced riders. I, I used to ride a motorbike, so I, I remember the, mm. I remember the, uh, the, the excitement of, of, uh, of feeling the wind and, that, and all that. <laughs> yeah. did, did the taxi driver know what, why you were yes. rushing? Okay. Yes, yeah, and he That's understood good. very well, and he had to be on time. Wow. <laughs> there was no, no other, there was no plan B. That's incredible. Um, Sounds like a, like a scene from a film or something yeah, like that, like yeah. a Mission Impossible, just like <laughs> parting in between traffic and stuff. A bit, yeah. <laughs> the Oscar ceremony was very different, though. I, I was so convinced that Zootopia or another American film would win, mm. that I was quite relaxed. Um, mm. You know, you have to prepare your speech. It's... Mm. Um, it's stupid not to because mm-hmm. you're you're not yourself uh, at a ceremony like that. You yeah. you lose your your clarity of mind a bit yeah. when you arrive on stage. And um, I was I had a speech, a very basic one. Yeah. I was there with Suzuki and a few other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and but indeed, the Zootopia won, and I just I was delighted for them. Mm. Um, meanwhile, I I had met all the other directors of the other animated features. And we had lovely, some lovely moments uh, together. Mm. Yeah, that's that's very different. Mm. The Oscar ceremony. It's it's uh, the hype is very 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 strong there. It's very bizarre. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it must be insane. Mm. And I was there, of course, when there was a hiccup at the end of the ceremony, where they mentioned the uh, wrong yeah, winner, yeah. Uh, the the, the oh, wrong right best feature end? winner yeah. was right at the end. And we saw it unfolding in front of our eyes. Yeah, yeah. It literally felt like... I remember saying um, to the person next to me, there's something bizarre going on there. Yeah. And, um, what was this what, uh, just after they announced it? They, um, just after they announced it, uh, announced it yes. Yeah. Just after there, there was some funny movement so on stage. It was like Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, Exactly. Right? They, they announced the wrong film. So they were like, oh, what, for best film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For How best did you film? not hear about this? <laughs> oh, I don't know. They were like on stage and they were like, yeah, it's, and the award goes to uh, La La Land. And everyone was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like everyone, like they got up and accepted the award. And speeches and, were made. And then one of the producers from La La Land uh, got up and he realized that there had been a mistake. And he like walked to the microphone. He's like, this is not a joke. There's been a mistake. The real winner is Moonlight. Yeah, I didn't know about. And this. it was like the final award of the night, and everything had been building up to it. It was like a total, you know, Mighty Ducks moment. Like it was Whoa. like the false ending. How did I not know about this? I have no idea. Yeah, right. yeah I'm surprised too. That. Yeah, I saw that, and it's doubly striking because everything is so well organized. That's where they they are really good at that in mm. in California. That's their. They're, that's a symbol of, of, the, of the Californian culture mm. is to organize an Oscar event and it was beautiful and well done and very glitzy and very extreme and then they make a major mistake like this <laughs> and on top of that Moonlight is not a typical Oscar winner in a sense mm. that it's a yeah. small budget indie film mm. that, wins, that wins against La La Land which mm. is so popular yeah mm. wow that's nuts do you know what I did have one last question um, we, I sort of thought maybe we'd naturally kind of get onto it. We didn't. Um, in the film, there's, and then you did speak about the BFI thing. Uh, there's no dialogue. This might be a bit of a spoiler. I don't know if it, that no, is enough. Well, it depends on what you're about to say. Well, just like they're, 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 even though you, 
<clears throat> you think for like maybe someone stuck on a desert island by themselves makes sense not to have dialogue, but he, there is interaction with other yes. humans in it. Yeah. And um, I just wondered if you could talk a bit about why you decided to yes. not have dialogue. I mean, there is a kind of dial, there is a kind of speech in it, but not. It's breathing, isn't it? Well, like he calls out now and again to say like help or hello. Or they something. don't. They don't have um, verbal language, but they yeah. have human sounds. Yeah. Uh, so it's not a silent film in that yeah. sense. It's, as you say, non, no dialogue. It was n not intended as a big artistic statement mm. to say to the world, we are making a film without dialogue. It felt more like um, for a huge chunk, he is alone. So obviously um, yeah. it, it feels natural if he doesn't talk, even, not even to himself. And then um, or originally in the script, there was some dialogue. I thought the film needed it. Mm. Um, it didn't feel right. We took it out. It's, it felt more like you don't really need it. Mm. That's, that was the main reason. And I like the purity of it. The film is, is, the film is realistic, but it's also stylized in mm. the sense that um, it's a big metaphor. And to take dialogue out makes, it, makes the metaphorical side mm. stronger, I think. Yeah. Um, but I have to say this carefully because at the same time we spend a lot of energy in grounding the film in normal everyday life yeah. with, uh, where you really feel the, the, the situation yeah I mean I'm, I suppose what I'm sort of getting at is that you in, in that when I heard you speaking about it before you were saying oh, you didn't really felt like it worked and in watching it I, I sort of feel like I don't, I don't know I felt like it maybe could have worked with like some moments of dialogue, not that like talking all the way through, but um, I, w I just wondered maybe like what was it specific when you tried it? It was like, no, this feels odd. Yes, it could have worked with some dialogue, but it, it would have changed the film. And maybe not, I don't think making better film would have made a different film. Um, for instance, and that was interesting um, when there was a temporary dialogue mm -hmm. with temporary actors. Um, people who would watch it for the first time, producers or colleagues uh, or newcomers to the team, they would say, oh my God, I didn't realize he speaks French. Um, because there's something so uh, neutral about the guy, you don't know anything about his past, mm -hmm. that it's a surprise to hear him talk any language. We had a French and an English version. I think it would have been funny if he'd had like a Geordie accent. <laughs> That's, I, I thought He's of that, actually. Really. You know why? Because the original Robinson Crusoe is fiction, by Daniel Defoe, but he based it on a real event of a certain Alexander Selkirk mm. from Scotland, oh, right. who was abandoned, willfully abandoned on an island because he didn't get on with the crew mm. of the ship. Mm. And he was later picked up, came back to Scotland, told the story. Daniel Defoe heard it and, and thought this, this is good material for oh, really? a fictional story. Mm. So what are you thinking about maybe giving him a Scottish accent? Or and I, I, very early stages I thought, wouldn't that be great? That would yeah. give him character. Um, yeah, yeah. But then, yeah, it just it just didn't click, the dialogue. Mm. All the ingredients were there, the right text, the right moments, very, very delicately chosen. When a man and a woman first meet, there's something. They say You say something or you ask something. Yeah, because I feel like yeah. it could have been interesting because you could have kept it maybe silent. Not silent, but dialogue-free because she might have not spoke the same language or something, mm. and you could have... Actually, the intention was to keep her quiet. Yeah. Not, not, she's not handicapped, she is just someone who doesn't talk. 
yeah, and yeah. that he would s speak with her and she would with her gestures and her expression um, reply and make mm. make clear that she understood him yeah um, that was one of the reasons why th there was some dialogue written there that mm. there was co she's not a, well I give it away if I say so but she is totally she understands him totally yeah yeah that yeah. That, that was important right and then so and later situations also in the film so um, the, the moment it was decided to drop the dialogue, actually, I, f I found it a very interesting challenge. Right. It was not what I expected, but then w when it was decided, I thought, oh, damn it, this is really interesting. Okay. Make the uh, acting as clear as possible and on those specific moments. Um, make the film language as clear as possible, music, etc. So th the idea of dropping it was because you thought it would enhance the overall feel, feel of the film? Yes, and it just it it struck us that it just didn't feel right because the script was approved by everybody, yeah. including me. Right. We felt like yeah, 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 it's good, yeah. it's fine. Um, but then, um, and I specifically asked my co-writer at that point. She came in, uh, and she's used to dialogue in a big way, and she said immediately dialogue doesn't feel right, we have to do something about that. She thought she had to um, suggest new sentences, and that didn't work either. But um, it's not, a, um, as I said earlier, it's, it's not like a big, courageous statement, artistic yeah. statement, and I don't see it like that. Right. I just felt like it will give the film a particular style, and uh, we have to make sure that the story is clear enough in mm. with the other languages. Yeah. Also, I have a personal thing with the dialogue with films. Uh, short films often are with without dialogue, and that's normal, and we're all used to that. Mm -hmm. I find sometimes the, the, a voice has two messages. The voice says with words what it needs to say, but there are the subtle messages when we speak, we, all of us. Um, the timbre of our voice, the accent, the, 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 the way we sing when we talk, etc., and that says a l gives a lot of messages. And if the designed character and the voice don't match, and mm. often I, f I find they don't match, um, then it, it it pulls me out of the the, the film. When, uh, I, yeah, I, when I watch the film personally, I think that the biggest complaint I have when I when I look at animated uh, mainstream animated films is that somehow the voices don't match up with the animation, and I don't know whether it's that they've chosen the wrong character or they're not like it's because they're like in a recording studio and they're not moving around while they're recording that the too. voices that too yes. and they're not like breathing what yes. in the right way one thing moving. that I thought was wicked about what Wes Anderson did yeah. with Fantastic Mr. Yeah. Fox is that he recorded them in I think that, that is a big, I think it is a yeah. really big thing yes like, honestly like people moving around in space changes the the sort of way your diaphragm is you know, constricted and stuff changes yes. so much the way that your voice comes out and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, sometimes, sometimes I'll find myself watching something like I found it a bit um, in Zootopia actually, where I was watching some of the animation. And as soon as you start thinking about thinking about the voice and the and the and the image being disconnected, then you kind of can't put them back together again. It really gets yes. into your head. Yeah, isn't that strange? It strikes me too, and it strikes me less with Japanese animation, even though the lip sync is often not that sharp yeah. in Japanese animation. They do animation. it afterwards, don't they? Yes. They record the voice after yeah. they've done the lip sync, which just seems mental. Mm. Mm. I, don't, I don't know what the reasoning is for that. Well, the verbal language, the Jap spoken Japanese, goes well with the body language of the characters often, I find. 
and they, the Japanese is very, has a very stable rhythm when they talk Japanese. Mm-hmm. So you, if you create a stable rhythm of the same speed in the mouth positions, you already get a lot of syn- um, coincidental synchronization. Right, right, right. That, that's my theory. Yeah. Maybe we'll end it there then. Okay. Do you, have, you got anything? No, no, no that's, uh, that's it. I, yeah, I don't think that I... Uh, took the time to say that I absolutely loved the red tail by oh, the way you. Yeah, um, yeah. Thank and, you. And, and everything yeah. you've ever what they were. thank you that's fantastic yeah, amazing huge, achievements huge, huge mm. fans it's a yeah. big moment for us to yeah. be sitting here with you man <laughs> and for me it's really and, and it may sound obvious but it's really special to hear this from you guys because as I told you earlier I've seen your work on your website and I went oh my god Oh, wow. I mean, it's much. really, I mean, are we really talking amongst the colleagues here who mm. all, all do the same thing. And th- that's the first time I've done quite a few interviews of, since it came out a year ago. And I've, I've never had this opportunity before. Oh, wow. yeah. I've only talk, talked with journalists yeah. and they were nice and lots of them were film buffs. Mm. But it's totally different, totally, totally different. Oh, yeah, we take, we take the nerdy, nerdiness to another level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thanks cool. so much. Thank yeah. you, Michael. Thanks very much. Really appreciate Thank you, you yeah. uh, making it all happen. Take care. Bye.